Hello and welcome to episode 184 of Some Like It Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, it's the fourth annual Some Like It Scott Awards, as we sign off with the year 2021 in film by honoring our favorite performances, screenplays, and moments from the year 2021 in film. But before we do that, I'm joined, as always, by Scott. Scott, how are you? Ah, doing well. Been waiting on this episode for a couple months. We made our top 10 list a couple months ago. And, you know, since then, I've just been thinking about awards. Um, thinking so hard about it, I waited until a couple days ago to make my list. So, you know, I just had to put a lot of time and energy and prep into the show. But honestly, there's just it, it actually there actually was some pretty like horrible decisions I had to make cutting cutting some from some categories. I, I mostly joke there, but no, it, it's it's good. Excited to be talking about this. And um, I think we can can put a pin in 2021 after this finally thank god Ugh. it's kind of crazy when we do something like this especially this year we actually sort of did it like the oscar style voting in a way uh the way that sure. we came up with our awards and nominations this year it's kind of crazy right to think about like you said how uh spoiled we are for choice in some of these categories and yet the oscars somehow yeah. put at least one or two people in each category that don't deserve to be there when they had so many choices but it just goes to reinforce what we have always said they don't actually watch a lot of these movies. Um, Paul Oyama, our guest, do you agree? Uh, yeah, I guess I'd call myself the Kirsten Dunst of this panel as someone who has seen all the movies. I watch all the screeners. I guess maybe that's Carrie not totally Coon. true. Um, no, Carrie the funny Coon, thing yeah. about this is is we had talked about doing this this episode for, for months, and I was like, well, I want to put it off a little bit so I can catch up on all the movies, and I still didn't catch up on and all the movies. And you've just been watching so. Yellow Jackets. Um, I know you've been watching this new <laughs> unserialized. Listen, that's not all I've been watching. Um but Sorry, anime I, as well. I forgot that that too. Yeah. Um, but no, I'm super excited. I mean, yeah, I think as much as you know, Scott Shelton groaned earlier. I think 2021 is a year in film to, to celebrate and something oh, nice. A sarcastic to, groan, man. Um, yeah, to, to, to put the bow on top. A pretty a pretty stellar year, I think. Um, and I think in most people's eyes, a sort of a bounce back from what I think a lot of people thought of as sort of a weak year for movies. Um, but everything kind of got squeezed into this year, and so I think there's more even yeah than usual. And yeah, I'm just excited. It's the, some of these categories. It's like I've had friends ask me for the last couple of weeks or months, like, "Oh, who do you, you know, who are your supporting actor or actress picks?" And I'm like, "Well, I got to hold off." So I'm pretty dedicated to the show. I think saving it for the Scotties. That's right. Well, we all I know guess that we're just because it. you didn't know the answer to that question. We know you were just making <laughs> well. A list part of that is not ago. wrong. <laughs> we're calling it the Scotties now. Scott or uh, not Scott? Paul has declared it. I don't think Scott and I can really be like that vain to say, "Oh, we're this is the Scotties," but now. That we've had, I mean, you already shot, named your podcast with both of your names, so I think you like you know, might as well just commit to the bit. That is fair. Um, but what do you guys say? We get the Scotties going. Um, we actually presented most of the awards an hour ago, and we're now going to be uh <laughs> editing in. No, I'm kidding. Oh, uh, we have classic, uh, I think, no, just original category. score. We just, we just did original score an hour ago, and now we're going to do the rest. <laughs> God, yeah. I think we have nine or ten categories that we have, we have here. Uh, going to be the main Oscar categories for the most part. We are going to close things out with our favorite scenes of the year, like we usually do on the award show um, here on Some Like It, Scott. Um, but each of us have five nominees in each category, like uh, the Oscars do. Uh, we're going to each read out our nominees for the majority of the categories, and then we'll have a little bit of a discussion about everyone's nominees um, as a whole. And then each of us will reveal our winner and speak individually about our winner. So that's how it's going to go tonight. Um, 
let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, Paul alluded to it there, or Scott, I forget which one of you said it, but original score is our first category. Um, why don't we go to Paul? Paul, uh, who are your nominees for original score? Uh, so my nominees for best original score, uh, I have Aiko Ishibashi for Drive My Car. I have Daniel Hart for The Green Knight. I have Dan Romer for Luca. I have Devontae Hines for Passing and Johnny Greenwood for Spencer. Scott, how about you? Uh, some, some overlap here. I got Dickon Hinchcliffe for The Lost Daughter. Alberto Iglesias for Parallel Mothers. Johnny Greenwood for The Power of the Dog. Antonio Pinto for Nine Days. And my guy, Hans Zimmer for Dune. I think I only have one outlier here, but mine are Dan Romer for Luca, uh, Alberto Iglesias for Parallel Mothers, uh, Antonio Pinto for Nine Days, uh, Alexander Desplat for The French Dispatch, and Johnny Greenwood for Spencer. Um, I don't think we're going to. Different Johnny Greenwood. Well, Paul for you. Spencer as well. Not yeah. for me. I know, for me. Yeah, for you, me. Had, you yeah. had the different one, yeah. Uh, I don't think we're going to spend too much time here, but let's let's go ahead and go to our winners. Paul, your winner for original score of those uh, five. My winner and some of my favorite film music in, honestly, a long time is Johnny Greenwood's score for Spencer. I think, like, just the jazziness and the liveliness, I think it really adds so much. I did just want to shout out, just real quick, though, that the piano in the passing score is just incredible, and that's sort of the main reason I had it on there. But, yeah, Johnny Greenwood for Spencer is my winner. A real Devontae Hines signature, like the yes. hazy soul of that movie. But yeah, uh, Scott, your winner. Uh, the, the wackiness of Hans Zimmer's Dune. Um, I'd ordered my nominees there in the order that I preferred them. I won't do that in the upcoming categories, <laughs> but did did for this one. Um, but yeah, I mean, the guy literally created instruments to make this score. Like he made new instruments and new sounds for this, which I think... And it's you one know, of his credits be... he actually composed. So there's that too. Yeah. Read yeah. that article. If Man, <laughs> I know. That's crazy. Also, if you get the chance to just listen to him, I can't even say rant. I think it's more like rave. Like he just goes on these like maniacal sort of like possessed monologues about him making this score. It's like kind of deranged to be honest. But if you get the chance to, to listen to him talk about the creative process for making this score, it's pretty hilarious. I got the chance to Tilson Tim talked about it a couple times, um, which was a real treat as, you know, a fellow fan of of doing the novel. Um, you know, he clearly has a lot of passion for it and like Denny Villeneuve, um, you know, a creative partner on it, like clearly is equally obsessed with the source material and and doing it justice. And I think you can sort of just see like the the passion and soul he puts into creating something just like wildly different. Um you know, for a movie that itself is, you know, pretty unique, or at least the source material material is, is pretty unique, or at least being a, a forerunner of its type. Yeah, and Paul and I are on the same page. I also picked Johnny Greenwood for Spencer. Uh, I think his music is just, it's perfect for setting like the oppressive atmosphere of this um, country manner where the movie mostly takes place. Um, probably my favorite score of his since There Will Be Blood. Um, I just felt like The Power of the Dog maybe was a tad too over, uh, overbearing a bit much at times. Um, but I think that fits 
Spencer a little bit better, just again, because it's trying to set the sort of oppressive claustrophobic atmosphere inside this place. And um, in addition to being very beautiful, just to listen to in isolation, I think um, it accomplishes that. So Johnny Greenwood, uh, the wrong score was nominated, but I hope he finally, <laughs> he finally gets it. I hope he finally gets an Oscar. That would be nice. But I don't know. I think Hans Zimmer might be the front runner right now. Would have been perfectly happy if they both had been nominated. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, you could definitely have seen that happening. All right, we are now going to move on to our next category, uh, which is Best Supporting Actor. Uh, let's switch up the order. Scott, why don't you give us your nominees first? All right, my nominees. In alphabetical order, uh, Kieran Hines for Belfast, Jason Isaacs for Mass, Cody Smith-McPhee for The Power of the Dog, Lakeith Stanfield for The Harder They Fall, and Mike Feist for West Side Story. Had heart attack thinking this is going to be a Judas and the Black Messiah thing, and I was like, "Wait, <laughs> we talked about um, this." <laughs> my nominees, in no particular order: uh, Jeffrey Wright in the French Dispatch, uh, Adrian Brody in the French Dispatch, uh, Jason Isaacs in Mass, uh, Coleman Domingo in Zola, and Anders Danielson Lee in The Worst Person in the World. I thought you were just going to uh, say the French Dispatch after every one of them. I know. <laughs> they could, who knows? Maybe they were all in it. Bob Balaban as uh, Adrian Brody's uncle. Um, no, uh, Paul, your uh, nominees. Uh, so my nominees, um, I also have Jeffrey Wright in the French Dispatch. I have Ben Affleck in The Last Duel. I have Jason Isaacs in Mass. Mike Feist in West Side Story. And Andrew Samuelson Lai in The Worst Person. So, uh... Jason Isaacs doing the sweep there. That was uh, so I guess kind he of wins. a surprise. That's, that's For me, the... it's all about that one scene where he talks about um, how these everyone could like never know his pain. Like basically, he wants more people to acknowledge his pain, but then he like also says they could never actually know my pain yeah. that I went through. Like that conflict that is going on inside him. I think everybody gets like their moment in mass, but like that's maybe the scene which sticks out the most to me or at least like the theme which i found the most interesting mass was just such a hard movie to pick out one performance from um and so but i just so i kind of just we all gravitated did. toward yeah well i kind of just gravitated towards like i said the scenes which like was the, were yeah. the most memorable to it's me. also hard because it's like they're all in the whole movie like are they not all the leads it's sort of a weird i always thought that you know the yeah. categorization of movies like that are just going to be a bit tough sort of always yeah, and to be then, fair, I had no so, idea what to do with either. You could have put it either place, but I put it in supporting because I felt yeah. Scott and Paul, you guys know. shared Mike Feist. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, he's just got this live wire energy in that movie that I just think is this special kind of thing, lightning in a bottle. That it's sort of hard to fully describe, but I just think like the movie just comes, you know, like again comes to life when he's on screen, even more so than it already is. Um, and it's like so unrestrained what he's doing. And it's this weird kind of expressiveness. Um, I think he does sort of like, I don't know, that character in such a different way than the, in the original movie. And so um, he just is dynamite. And he's the person I came away from the movie thinking the most about. And I was like, that guy's unbelievable. Like, who is that guy? To find out he was like, sort of became famous from doing Dear Evan Hudson. Yeah, I was going to say, you should have reprised um, Connor in Dear Evan Hudson. I told yeah, that to Scott yeah. at the end of our West Side Story episode, and I, I don't... You, I, I don't he remember how he responded. They, but no wonder he had, he wasn't nominated. If you would have never told him, he might have been in the five. He's just pretty unreal, I think. Right? I think, Scott, you, you're in agreement with that. I am. I've, I talked at great length a few months ago about my thoughts about Mike Feist, but 
And I think I even said at the time that he'd probably be in my list of supporting actor. And lo and behold, there he is. Yeah, he was amazing. Um, I was talking about this movie with someone at work um, who did not like the movie. Um, th- thought Mike Feist was awful in the film. And I'm just like, I can't talk to you about Tough. this film anymore. Tough. I can't talk to this about this. I can't talk with this. They're, they're like, the other guy was great, but Mike yeah. Feist? <laughs> No, no, the person did not think Ansel Elgort was great either, but I was just like, okay, I can't engage, can't engage any further on this. Um, yeah, thought thought the movie, like the direction and like was boring and didn't like the choreography. I'm just like, I don't even know how to engage. <laughs> I'm, I'm aghast at this. This is crazy. Yeah, no, it's fine though. Uh, I don't want to spend my time talking about that element of it, but no, I really, I really liked my, Mike Feist in this, in this film. I mean, maybe it's because he's, you know, he's a member of the same group that Ansel Elgort you know, is sort of allied with and you have him juxtaposed next to him and mm-hmm. a lot of scenes, but he just sort of like towers above him, both in terms of energy and also just sort of commitment to yeah. this sort of like person, this leader of a group that feels like their, their home and community is forgetting about them and moving past yeah. them. He, um, he, he does, I, he does the like underdog, like you, like yeah. the, almost like the Jeremy Renner in the town. You think you're better than me thing. Like, in such a perfect way in the movie. What a weird comparison for this movie. Okay. <laughs> I feel like the energy sure. that he brings is very similar, though. And uh, I had never thought about Jeremy Renner when I was thinking about Mike Feist, but fair enough. No, that, uh, I'm always I'm, thinking about him. I still have the app on my phone. But um, bro, watch Hawkeye then. Get your fix. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Paul, we shared uh, Jeffrey Wright and Anders mm-hmm. Danielson. Lee, I, I yeah. for the latter, I really enjoyed his performance both times, especially the second time. I think I watched Worst Person in the World. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know his his. Uh, it's a very complex character because um, you have to still like him and identify with him, even though like he had like I love the scene where he's on the talk show. She sees oh, him yeah. on the talk show or whatever, and he's just going on his rant and whatnot. Um, but he's I don't know his performance just really matches like these all these characters are just kind of messy um but when he actually like reflects on his life at the end in that scene at the Jesus hospital Christ. that is some yeah that's some heavy it's stuff. all about like, that, that might be the be- yeah that might be the best acting in the whole movie like him talking about like oh i devoted my life and everything to all to art and like you know all this kind of like basically the stuff that we're into <laughs> the three of us and he's like oh and then it didn't really matter like in the end like what what did what is it all for yeah, I think the movie, one of the tricks of the movie is it sort of, like, portrays this character seemingly this kind of flat 2D, like, just this passing figure in her life. And then when it sort of uncovers this layer of him that you didn't realize was there the entire time, I think it really opens up the entire world of the movie. And I think when you learn, again, that he has these feelings and, um, yeah, just the pain of when he's talking to her about, like, wanting to have a family and everything. And um, that discussion, like, on the hospital bench is just, like jesus like i just like needed to sit afterwards and it was just he just brings such like an emotional groundedness to the movie that i think the rest his character for the rest of the movie you don't really think that kind of thing is there and the way he brings that to the forefront almost so quickly in the scene is like it's just devastating and i just think he's he's incredible in that scene and also the man is a doctor um so we just have to acknowledge that too um He's doing it all. Jeffrey Wright, not a doctor, but he has put in some really good performances over the last 365 days. Um, The Batman, we just talked about. Sweaty. No no time to die. He was a delight. And and then, but this, I mean, this one definitely takes the cake, I think. Um, The wistfulness, like, 
that like that like regretful nostalgia that he has and like the the um monologue he has about like oh you know he's like this lonely guy but everywhere he's gone in the world there has been a you know empty table in a restaurant waiting for him uh, kind mm-hmm. of like explaining why he does what he does as a food writer food critic um just kind of a unexpectedly um poignant and lovely moment as is kind of the scene that he shares with Nescafe um, after Nescafe has been poisoned there um yeah, it, it it it's one of those things you you watch it and it's like, why has he never worked with Wes Anderson before? Because like their styles, I feel like just perfectly mesh with each other. Yeah, he's like playing James Baldwin, but not playing James Baldwin, which is a, such a weird kind of take on the character. But I think like it's such a difficult thing too to do in a movie that has a lot of these goofy um, and very bit heavy influences and everything. Um, but I, he somehow pulls it off and brings a soulfulness, I think, that the movie needs almost when it reaches that that sort of back third. And he yeah, everyone's dri- saying that drives home the emotional center of the movie. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's saying like, oh, this movie, it's too cold. Like it doesn't have the emotional, you know, it doesn't have any emotion to it. Like, I, I feel like they just didn't even watch the segment of the movie because like that, it's just kind of all hard, I feel like. Um, so, yeah, he's great. All right. Winners. Uh, Scott. Best supporting actor. Who you got? Cody Smith McPhee. I think he he was the front runner for a long. Maybe still is a constant discussion on the podcast about whether he's still the front runner. Uh, seems uh, that it's no trending down. But I kind of think that that would have been if he if he does win it. Which you know, again, I I put my money as of the last episode on Troy Kotzer. But if he does win it, I feel like the Academy's actually getting it right. You know, in this in this category, I think he's really. In, in a in a movie full of really really powerful performances, really strong, you know, capital A acting performances that are like fine tuned, um, you know, almost to to perfection in a lot of instances. I mean, he kind of stands up to some really powerful performances, and in some ways, is the sort of haunting image. Um, you know, maybe there's a couple of those, but there is a haunting image left in the film um, in different parts, and I think there's just a there's like a, there's a coolness and a cool smoothness almost not like cold smoothness is maybe a better way not, not to be, not to confuse anyone with a performance that, you know, really, I think makes you recoil when all is said and done in a way that, you know, just makes me really admire what he's able to capture with this particular character and the complex emotions he's able to sort of harbor for multiple different people. Um, not to spoil the power of the dog, but, I think it's a really, really fantastic performance. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's a good pick. It was on like my long list of ones that I um, shouted out. Uh, There was just a couple that I enjoyed more, but one of those um, being Adrian Brody in the French dispatch, which is my winner for the category. Um, Yeah. I don't, uh, it's just the most fun I had watching a performance. Like, honestly, that is why this one takes the cake for me. Like, just when I rewatched this movie um, not long ago, I was just, like, so excited just for him to come on screen and do his thing for 15 minutes or, you know, however long he is actually in that segment. Um, just like the how self-serious he is, but, like, it's it's his it, to an absurd degree. Uh, that's, like, what makes his character funny because, like, he's so, again, he's so, like, serious about art and like 
putting this artist's name out there and work out there. But like he, you realize very early on, he doesn't actually know really anything about art. Um, and he's yeah, just trying watch, to make money. He's, just, he's in it for the money. Yeah. So just wa- but then watching like that final scene that the, when the mural is revealed there um, and his reaction of like going from like outrage, like realizing I'm not going to actually make any money off of this um, to then actually appreciating the art for what it is and like, you know, kind of learning a lesson through all of it um, and then getting to actually make the money again because the, the old lady decides that she's going to invest in, in it. Um, it. It's, it's so much fun to watch like his lines readings. Um, like, I think it stinks when he like sees the mural for the first time is just the one that kills me. But my uncles are, are sick look at them and they're just standing there doing nothing um it's it's so funny um so this this is the one for me again it it wasn't like some technically wow performance like cody smith mcphees was um but i just couldn't deny that how much i enjoyed watching this performance and as much as i love the whole movie it would not be the same without him there and what this character brings to that story and again another perfect match for wes anderson's style though i think he uh, though obviously he has worked with wes before yeah and paul um my my win is anders danielson lie i think that his just i was just so devastated by his performance and that conversation is just going to stick with me so firmly i think from that movie um, because of what he brings to it. And it's he's a kind of act, an actor that I, I've always found really interesting. I think he's also really quite good in Birdman Island as well and um, is a performer I hope to see sort of in more movies like this. It, this makes me want to go back and watch Oslo August 31 because I haven't actually seen that. Um, but yeah, sort of everything that I mentioned, it just he he is like so necessary for the movie to give you a different perspective um, on Julie. Um, so yeah, I just think he's, he's real real incredible in that movie and um and it's it's a shame that you know actors and in, in movies like worst person in the world can't really get on the radar of you know um you know people giving out these big awards or whatever but that's what these are for i suppose right to celebrate the great work that they do and i think it's well, get nominated. Got easier for. Yeah. yeah well the film did get nominated for an award so more than it usually does no, that's what I'm saying. But I'm saying the actors in in yeah, sure. foreign language movies almost always like are never like a parasite yeah situation yeah, yeah. All right, so there you have it. Uh, Adrian Brody for myself, Cody Smith-McPhee for Scott, Anders Danielson Lee for Paul. We forgot to do the bit about like, oh, our best supporting actress winners from last year are coming out to present the award. Uh, I don't remember. I, I think mine was Maria Bakalova um, last year. I forget wow. who else I, who I had that's last a, year. That's a poll. For me, I think, I think it was I, Talia Ryder. Mine was Talia Ryder. Talia Ryder. Yeah. yeah. They both were? Okay, yeah. Um, any real quick before we move to the next category, do you, does anyone else just want to like say some names that were close for you? Not really anything about them, but just say some names for me. Oh, I believe Bradley them. Cooper, Bradley Cooper in Licorice Pizza, Ethan Darbone, who plays Lonnie and Red Rocket. Um, I had uh, Kieran. Hines I deleted, I deleted and the rest then, of my long list, man. <laughs> Mike. My chaos pick was uh, was Tony Leung and Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. But that uh, is a chaos pick. You deleted your Scott. I did. Yeah, I literally did it. Like I'm sorry. Well, now for, you know for me, for, for me, it's too many people that were really close. I think um, I haven't talked about my last nominee, Ben Affleck. I just think the absurdity that he brings to the movie is so perfect. And I think he totally is in command of 
his public persona in a way and how much of a dunce I think people see him as. And I think he's leaning into that in a way that I think is really interesting. Um, and he's just so entertaining. Getting the he's, so, he's so entertaining in that movie. And it's like, if that movie had just hit, I think that, because I think people were in the mood to sort of get Ben Affleck in a nomination. I, you know, I think that that would be the one that people would be really looking at. Um, but I just think he's so good in, in The Last Duel and just really, really incredible. So that slot that he came in for me, which is the fifth slot of my nominees, really was cycling in and out constantly. But I think I just settled on like, I just didn't really have much more fun seeing anyone else act, you know? So it's a yeah, that's because you didn't same, watch Lakeith Stanfield and the harder they fall. <laughs> maybe, just maybe. saying. All right. Uh, oh, I will say category. Reed Bernie in Mass. That's my one that I okay. do remember. Yeah. Oh, that was on that sure. list. The other guy, <laughs> the other guy from Mass. You can call okay. him. Um, all right, moving on to our next category, which is best original screenplay. Um, my nominees. I will start. Uh, Licorice Pizza, uh, The French Dispatch, Red Rocket, Mass, and The Worst Person in the World. Uh, Tough. Not, not giving the writers their credits. All right. Listen, I was about to say I, I'm a pro you're writers guy, so I'm called out right I'm, now. I'm, I'm, All right. <laughs> Paul Thomas, Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza. Can he do this off the top uh, of his head. Let's see. He's not uh, going to get Fran the co-writers Cran. for some of these. Fran Kranz in Mass for Mass. Uh, Sean Baker and Chris Bergosh for Red Rocket. Wes Anderson for The French Dispatch. Joachim Trier and whoever his co-writer is for The Worst Person. Yeah, he has nobody. No, he really? has a co-writer. Oh, wow. oh, get get wrecked, Paul. Does he not? Uh, I could be wrong about this. I think he I think he does. Anyway. I, mean, I don't I mean it's possible again. Time, we're doing research in real time here. Um, anyway, right, right, you're um so my nominees in in the category. Uh wow, I literally lost my place on mine. There we go. Um <laughs> I have uh Joachim Trier and Eskel Voigt uh for the worst person in the world. I have Mike Mills. All right. I have <laughs> Mike Mills for Come On, Come On. I have Celine Siama for Petite Maman. I have Michael Rianda and Jess Rowe for the Mitchells versus the Machines, and I have Ryusuke Hamaguchi for Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. Yeah, some overlap here. Got Celine Shiyama for Petite Mama. Edson Oda for Nine Days, Fran Kranz for Mass, Pedro Almodovar for Parallel Mothers, and Sean Baker and Chris Bergosh for Red Rocket. Okay. All right, so what all did we have in common? Were there, was there any that was on all three? Uh, Paul, you didn't have Red Rocket, did you? I did not have Red Rocket. And okay. you didn't have Mass either, I'm pretty sure, right? So. Oh, no. Well, Scott go. and I shared uh, Mass and Red Rocket. Um yeah, I mean, Mass, like a movie like Mass only works if you have great dialogue. Obviously. I mean, it's great dialogue and performances. And I think, um, I don't know, he was able to explore so many different threads stemming from this one event. I mean, it's one event, but there's so many different areas he goes into um, with his screenplay. And he probes them all like very, in a very full way. And, you know, he gives everyone their moment. But like it never feels too stagey, too much like a play. Like I don't know how much is in the script as far as like the actual shots that are in the movie. But like, um, you know, the camera placements and like who he chooses to foreground, Fran Kranz, that is like are all very deliberate um, and make are, are again are all ways that it makes it feel more like you're like you're watching more than just a film to play. Um, so I think that that was really impressive. And then, yeah, Sean Baker and Chris Bergosh, I mean, um, just so perceptive about this very specific type of toxic masculinity 
and not just how it affects this one community, but how it is kind of affecting our country as a whole. Um, again, but doing that without ever judging anyone, without ever being preachy in that very Sean Baker way. Um, so, you know, two definite favorites for me. Uh, Scott, what do you want to say about those? Yeah, I mean, I was just so blown away by Mass when I saw it at Sundance last year. And it's a film that, I mean, granted, it's come back into the dialogue and the, and the conversation in the meantime, you know, when it did get its wide release. But it's also a film that's stuck with me and as strong as the performances are. And, you know, we just talked about Jason Isaacs just a few minutes ago. It really is a plot like like Frank Kranz is able to provide a platform for that to be realized, kind of like you were saying um, with the script he was able to to create and. You know, there's there's plenty of other elements about the film that I that I do admire, but it's the screenplay sort of first and foremost for me when I think about the movie that is such an accomplishment, especially when he hasn't you know, he hadn't written or directed a movie before. So, I mean, granted, he's been around it a lot as an actor, but it's a very it's a very different art and craft and it's very impressive. And yeah, Sean Baker, I mean, trademark style, kind of like you say, he's able to to sort of shine a light, you know, a, a sort of non judge non judgmental light but gives you all the information that you need to know to make your own judgment about mm -hmm. it um and the judgment that he probably wants you to make but like never sure yeah i mean not to say that you're not leading, leading that, the yeah. witness a little bit but there still are people who think that he's out there like glorifying stuff <laughs> um which you know for for um you know for the florida project that's you know that is what it is rather the conversation is not even relevant versus red rock it's obviously going to be more relevant but yeah i think it's a real accomplishment to be able to tell a story in that way and not not everyone most people cannot cannot do it uh, with that sort of sensitivity or, and that sort of you know i don't want to say light touch but very um particular touch paul you had yeah. a, a fun outlier with uh the mitchells versus the machines actually a movie we well we also about, shared petite uh, maman but we can together. also yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, why don't you talk about that? I, I think it's just a movie that has such emotional depth for children with, with like for child characters in ways I think that movies struggle to capture. And it's again, it's really short, but compact. And I think it uses each moment so effectively. And it's every single specific choice, whether it's what someone's saying or what someone's not saying, that stuff is also intertwined with the character's sort of emotional state. And I think, you know, I not I know a lot of people haven't haven't gotten into it yet, so I won't get into super deep particulars, but some of the stuff it does in the last five, you know, 10, 15 minutes, I think, um, is really reflective about our relationship to our family and our past and how that affects our future. And um, Selin Siyama, I think, is just, as a writer and as a director, is just really, really special to me. And um, it sort of is a shame that this movie got caught in this weird in-between period where it's like, it's sort of on it's wide release in like a few and, weeks yeah yeah and it's 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 in a weird spot but i think it's a really special movie and that's because of the way that she writes it um and yeah i just think it's just really a perfect little piece like little slice of life in for these little girls yeah it's a really beautiful film and i i feel like it can't be overstated how impressive it is to be able to pack so much emotional punch you know, into 73 minutes or whatever this movie is. Yeah. I mean, the thing hits like an absolute, you know, wrecking ball, 
I think when it really when it really gets to its emotional crescendo, but it doesn't really feel like it's going by too quickly at the same time. Uh, it's really impressive that it's just telling this tight story, especially coming from someone who told this really, you know, drawn out in, in many ways, like two out, you know, two hour plus. And you really know, kind of operatic drama. and it's yeah, and it's yeah. very different. Uh, I mean, different li literally cadence. operatic in one scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, That's true. But well, I guess it wasn't an opera, it was a symphony, probably, but because it's I don't think there's opera, but it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's such a contrast to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And they both hit different uh, for me. I haven't seen much of her other previous work, but it's it's crazy. That really that good too. Thematically so different, but is able to resonate so powerfully on different subject material. And, you know, if you get the chance to see this film in the next couple months when it does hopefully come to more theaters, although I don't know how wide it's wide release is actually going to be. You should take the chance because it's it's only 75 ish minutes of your life and you're not you're probably not going to regret it because it does really feel like an experience that everyone will be able to reflect on because everyone was a child. Um, and I don't has some relationship I, that way. And I don't say this lightly, but to me, it captures some of the magic of my neighbor Totoro and that it has really important and deep emotional ideas about children, but also communicates them in a way that's really pleasant and warm and inviting. And it doesn't feel like it's ever making you feel scared in a way, I think. And it yeah. has this sense of curiosity. It's, you know, it's like a movie about like, you know, how kids can make friends really easily and how those friends can become really important really quickly. Um, yeah. And it's, it's pretty special in that regard. Um, and you, you mentioned, yeah, Mitchell's versus the machines. That's just a movie where I was <laughs> just honestly so emotionally devastated. And, you know, on paper, it is so obviously pitched directly at me as we sort of talked about on the, on the show. Uh, but it, just the creativeness of the world and these specific characters. And um, again, a lot of what it's, the way it's telling its story is like sort of catnip for me. But the relationship of, of these family members, especially Katie and her father, I just think it's like really something worth celebrating. And um, it's the sort of kind of movie that I feel like people sort of toss off. It's like, oh, that was a nice, pleasant, whatever. But I like I was sobbing during some multiple moments of the movie at some shit that's, you know, really goofy in, in theory. But I think because of how it's written and how when these moments of these characters growth and relationships to each other come i think it really delivers that punch um again and in a way that's fun that's still fun it's not like a movie that's like there are some you know like for example there are like some pixar movies that are really at times really emotionally like overbearing and like like the bing bong moment in inside out or something right where it's like designed to make you cry and it's effective but like for me what i loved about the mitchells versus the machines moments are they just feel like these characters behaving as they would and their relationship changing to, to fit the world that they occupy. And I think it's a pretty special movie. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I just hope people remember the movie and, you know, think about sort of what, what how it left them. Cause it's been a while since it came out, frankly. Yeah. I will accept I no outside out slander on this podcast. I'm going to edit that out. Just saying, <laughs> Apple. Yeah. I, it was one I really loved at the time, but need to, uh, need to rewatch but petite mama i have not seen yet but i'm very much looking mm -hmm. forward to see it when it comes out um all right let's do winners guys uh i guess i'll start since i started nominees uh i've already talked about it red rocket for me very i mean kind of running away with it almost uh, i just think the screenplay is you know very smart for all the reasons kind of that scott was mentioning um the way it leads you down a path with without ever 
you know, making it clear that that's what it's doing. And then all of a sudden you look up, you know, an hour or so in and you're like, wait, I actually hate this guy. Um, and that's all, I mean, you know, that's some of that is the directors, but some of that is the screenplay or a lot of that is the screenplay too. So, um, I had to, there's like a particular scene after, after like the car, after the car wreck and stuff where he's like out in the backyard, like celebrating where I think it like really hits you for the first time. He sees he's Lonnie's dad. Yeah. Yeah. It's so deplorable. But like you're also like, but like yeah, I also totally get that. What do you, it's just like there's particular moments where it comes becomes like really clear. Yeah, you're really not really, supposed to like this guy. <laughs> it's a very funny movie too. Like it, it is, it is funny. Sometimes you like maybe wish you weren't laughing at the things you're laughing at. But like, yeah. um, I think there's a skill to that uncomfortable humor. Um, so yeah, it's a wonderful screenplay. Uh, Paul. Uh, my, my winner is Celine Sciamma for Petite Maman. I think I, we, I, you know, I just sort of got into a whole thing about it, but it is a really special movie and one that I hope people, um, take the time to go and see because, it, and it, I think it's a movie that like, I think it's perfect for children too. It teaches them so much about their emotional depth, I think in ways that maybe they may not even, their parents might, might not even normally acknowledge, like kids do feel these things very deeply too. And I think it's a really special little treat of a movie. Scott? One we've already talked about as well, Fran Kranz for Mass for me. Just an outstanding first attempt at a screenplay. I mean, I guess I don't know if it's his first attempt. He's probably tried to write other stuff. I shouldn't say that. But, <laughs> yeah, that's his first uh, attempt at a screenplay. His that's first unbelievable. Final product. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, no, Matt, Matt, it was great. And, uh, you know, Mass was one of those, I've talked about it before, but like when I saw that, Q&A with Martha Plimpton it was like it clearly meant so much to them like the everyone involved with this movie like it, it clearly like they were all really passionate about it and like I think a and lot even of listening to him from, like reading the screenplay and just being so you know moved by and it. and listening to him talk about it even on like the big pick episode where he was in he like talked with Sean Fennessy about it I was just like his sort of approach even after having written the screenplay but like translating to the screen I just felt was like pretty arresting in a way, I don't know. That's the right word for it. But yeah, right. and, and just 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 yeah, just to get a you know a quick thing, real quick about two of my nominees that I didn't really mention. Sure. Um, Mike Mills and Come On, Come On. I think the core idea of the movie is kind of what what got it the nomination for me. Is just I think it's it's got that specific point of view about um, how as children we experience these things that our parents experience with us and we forget about it and that stuff sticks with them and becomes part of their memory of us and um this struggle really to connect with an adult because you know there are these moments <laughs> you would you know woody norman's character will probably forget in 10 years and joaquin phoenix probably never will it might be his enduring impression of I'll his make nephew. you remember and yeah that movie that specific strand of it i think is what really brought it there for me and then mm-hmm. wheel of fortune and fantasy which honestly was like neck and neck for my win in this category um it, it has it captures in each of the three segments this naughty, difficult tension in these sort of in often romantic relationships where there is a push and pull and sometimes people are not the people we want them to be or that they should be. But um, those dynamics are so specific. And I just, you know, specificity is one of the things I really look for in movies. And that emotional specificity is something I haven't really seen matched in anything in and honestly quite a quite a while and so i was pretty blown away by this movie specifically like the way that it's written and how the different segments sort of connect to each other 
Yeah, to make Vision it so cohesive, it's impressive. Um, all right, uh, best supporting actress is our next category. Uh, let's go right back to Paul, your nominees. Uh, so in Best Supporting Actress, oh, I made this is the one where I was like, I'm going to decide in the moment. So I'm going <laughs> to decide when I get to the when I get to that slot, I'll decide. Um, so I have Martha Plimpton for Mass. Uh, I have Neil Wasikowska for Bergman Island. I have Kotsky Mori for Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. I have Amy Simitz for No Sudden Move. And I have Jesse Buckley for The Lost Daughter. Scott. I have Anjanu Ellis for King Richard, Katrina Balfe for Belfast, Jesse Buckley for The Lost Daughter, Rebecca Ferguson for Dune, and Zazie Beetz for Nine Days. This is just kind of hilarious that I'm the one who does not have Jesse Buckley, but uh, all right, my nominees God. are... This is... Uh, sorry, can, do we just stop the podcast here, Scott? I think we have to end the whole <laughs> entirety of Sun Like It's Scott. You've been complaining for years about this i mean she was like my number six but um she got nominated in, this year <laughs> and out in mass yeah. uh alicia vikander in the green knight uh gabby hoffman in come on come on uh susanna sun in red rocket uh was kind of my last one in and then riley keogh and zola were my five nominees uh so Paul, I want to ask you, which character, the actress you nominated from Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which character was that? She's the girl from the second, the main girl from the second segment, um, where she uh, has Which, which performance are you talking yeah. about for... for uh, Kotsky Mori. Kotsky Mori in Wheel... That's fair, yeah, which of the two? No, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she's the woman in the second segment who does the... Yeah. Who, read, who has the excerpt where she reads from the novel. Uh, she wasn't even acting, she was just reading. Can't believe you nominated her. <laughs> That was my favorite. Well, actually, I don't know. I might have liked the third one, but um, the most. But yeah, no, that was that was a good good choice. I I thought about the guy who plays the professor for the supporting mm. actor even in that scene. But um, yeah, so we had like some very different choices. I feel like in this uh, category, maybe it was just a loaded category. I I think I mentioned this before, but this oh, yeah. might have. I think this was the one where I had the most on my long list i think this is the hardest of any of the acting categories the hardest yeah. Category, yeah agreed um, i had zazzy beats really close as well um scott but it just didn't quite make it for me for which movie but though for nine days <laughs> definitely the harder they days. fall it was on my <laughs> long list too so jesse buckley was shared um what do you guys want to say about that performance that's what i that did I this in doing. honor of you scott i don't i feel yeah. like massive regret for putting her on the list now i mean honest honestly the the tension for me was she i definitely think is one of my five favorites part of me was like well she has an oscar nomination do i want to give some attention to someone who doesn't have that sort of recognition but i was like i think that would be dishonest i think not only the way that she sort of translates olivia colt like the young version of olivia coleman's character and i think matches her but it's the, the way that she plays this difficult character in a way that's so easy to empathize. And she's just sort of is all over the place, but always has some sort of center grounding her. And she changes so much too around different people. And I think that says so much about her character in ways that I think is really satisfying. And I think she's just an incredibly talented performer, frankly, that in almost anything is like really attention grabbing. Yeah. Scott, your thoughts on that performance? Yeah, I thought it was, I mean, I'm very taken by the performances in this movie. And I found Jesse Buckley kind of exactly to what Paul was saying around 
her ability to sort of emulate not Olivia Coleman, but what Olivia Coleman is doing with Kit. Like the fact that they're able to be on a similar wavelength, but in a way where you can see that there has like these events that are happening. Changed her. Yeah. The better become Olivia Coleman. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 The sort of almost like a combination of the two. But the performance as a standalone is also, I find, really compelling. And I just find it's like, honestly, it's just like so easy to act a character it, who is doing things that are right and that like are morally simple and like straightforward and so much more difficult to be like similar to what you were talking about earlier about like a deplorable person with like Red Rocket and writing that script. I think acting that too is, is an incredible, is, is like something different that not that it's unique in any way because other films do do it, but I think it adds just such an extra layer of, of the performance. And I think to, it's one thing to see Olivia Coleman doing what she's doing in the future, which yes, there is, you know, a, a mean sort of ugliness element to that as well. But in many ways, but like, not to her own ugly. children, but not to her own children in the way exactly. that Jesse Buckley like, doesn't want what, them what around ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's much uglier what Jesse Buckley is doing. And I find it, at the same time, to have, to have be able to act a character in a way that does make you empathize with her and understand the ugliness. I think that's what's the real rich texture to the to the performance. Yeah, I, maybe I just wanted to spread the wealth. I don't know. I mean, my love for Jesse Buckley is well established at this point. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, a couple for me, like. Alicia Vikander, just it's just like the I don't know. It's you got to tell me which role it is, Scott. I, I gotta I gotta be able to level with you. You can't you can't. It's say just everyone. my thing. My thing that I'm drawn to in acting. And one of those yeah. things that I'm drawn to is acting is when somebody does like a double role in a movie. I just find it like very impressive, and um, I love her as like the needy like girlfriend of uh, of. Gawain when the movie starts and like that scene where she's like basically grabbing on him like basically you know trying to keep him from leaving um to like the exact opposite of that where she's like this very seductive character but you know you also sense that deception behind her eyes that like you know this is all sort of a setup um that Gawain finds himself in with this character uh so I was one that just stuck with me like um, throughout the the whole year, I remember like at the time commenting on it, like, "Wow, I thought that she was really impressive how she was able to do both of these things." Um, and Can I rewind it, it you to 2019 really quickly, where you had Jesse Buckley winning for Best Actress, and you did not even talk about Lupita Nyong'o, the her dual performance in Us. Did I really not have her in there? No. Well, at, okay. To be fair, I feel like at the time we were doing. Um, like only like a couple honorable mentions. She would definitely would have been in the five if we had done. Five. You have four yeah. names on here. They're all from Little Women. Oh, no. Sure, <laughs> they're all from I'm Little Women. Okay, <laughs> okay. you gotta walk uh, into that one. Yeah. Uh, well, that that is my bad. You are correct. I'm that just I'm bad. just messing with uh, you. Gab Gabby Hoffman is the other one that really stuck with me. Like, I don't know her. Her and um, Joaquin Phoenix together was like one of the most believable sibling relationships that I have seen, and I love watching her like almost triumphantly experiencing Johnny, like experiencing what she has to deal with on a daily basis with like mm -hmm. dealing with like, cause so much of her performance in the movie is like her on the phone with him, like walking him through, like, no, this is what you have to do. Like, yeah. Don't you see like, this is what I have to put up with on a daily basis. I, I, I don't know. It just, it really worked for me. It was, I, I found it very 
she was like a very believable, like beleaguered mom who like loves her kid um, very clearly. And like, you know, I, I, the scenes just that are the two of them, like sort of the flashback type scenes between her and Woody Norman are really like lovely in that very specific Mike Millsy way. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a real, really heartfelt and important character, I think, um, to sort of anchor that central relationship that is going on between Johnny and, uh, and Woody Norman's character. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. do think. Uh, one, who else do we want to talk about? Yeah, I did want to shout out one because I think that the the grandness of the movie has overshadowed what I think are also genuinely good performances, and that's Rebecca Ferguson in Dune. Mm. I think that she's Close. doing Close a, a lot of work in that film, which obviously is getting a lot of nominations and you know maybe awards here next week for its craft, for, you know, score, cinematography, design, et cetera, like insert every below the line um, award. And I, and I, I I can understand why it's being overshadowed by the sort of craftsmanship of it all. But I also think that the, the film in a lot of ways, like those, it doesn't come together as a truly spectacular movie without a couple really solid performances. Um, And the one that, that sort of comes to the forefront for me is Rebecca Ferguson. I think you could even argue that maybe she's even a lead in the movie. Um, but I, I, sort of, I sort of slotted her in here as as supporting actress. I just think that it, it's, yes, it is like Paul, it is Timothy Chalamet's characters, <clears throat> like coming of age moment. But like the film, like the emotional weight of the film, I think almost, almost revolves exclusively around Rebecca Ferguson's character. Like Paul's overcoming stuff, but like she's the one who's like emotionally wrestling with everything because she knows... Frankly, she knows more about what's going on than everyone else in the film. And she's having to, to come to terms with essentially the multiple lives that she lives. One as a former Benny Gesserit, um, you know, religious uh, follower and the other as this sort of, um, you know, family member to the House of Atreides, this, you know, the concubine of of Leto and the father of Paul. And I think that she's able to balance that sort of really, really well. And she's able to go on her own emotional journey while also guiding, you know, the main character in the film um, through, through these different moments. And I think she, she does that balancing act extremely well. Yeah, I agree. I think that one of the performances I really wanted to highlight is Mia Wasikowska in Bergman Island. Um, You know, she plays like the character inside the sort of frame device of the movie. And she just has this really emotional desperation where she's really clinging on to this person that, sort of very clearly like is sort of wishy-washy and she she wants something that she knows that she sort of can't have but she really you know she can taste it in these brief glimpses and you see, i think that the one scene of her really expressing herself when she sort of dances at the bar is a really good display of like what she wants her life to be and then sort of ultimately what it is and obviously she's you know a fictional character even within the movie so she's not even you know a quote-unquote a full person but um also what her character says about the Vicky Crips character and what she, you know, and her ideas, I think are really interesting in the way that she mirrors some of her behavior is fascinating to me. And I just think that she's such a, dis- like, she's just a, such a memorable and, and distinct face at all times. I feel like throughout the movie where she was just making these expressions that I think said so much without even her having to speak. Um, that That's what really drew me to her as, as a performer. And she's not someone that, I always necessarily love as an actor either Mia Wasikowska, but I think when she's, when she's on like she is in this movie, it's probably my favorite thing she's done. Um, it's really, really special. 
Yeah, I hear great things about that performance, but another movie that I haven't. Um, I was I about. like almost went to see that movie like four different times in the fall. It's on Hulu, it's on Hulu guys. It's, it's out there, you know. Okay. Yeah. I just yeah, I feel like I need to study my Bergman more, but uh, we will hopefully get there eventually. Uh, yeah. Wait, Scott, okay. do you want to talk quickly about Zazie Beats? Since we both, I mean, you talked about how also her having close to your list. Yeah. I mean, I, like, I thought. Just a, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say just like a very like open-hearted, expressive like contrast to like the buttoned-up sort of characters of Jadis. this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, again, it's it. She's perfect to offset Winston Duke, like being again this very like professional, strictly business. I'm not going to get emotionally attached because of what has happened to me with this other person, um, and, and own, her own. just sort of her just sort of like natural warmth, just bringing that out of him slowly without you know even though just him despite him trying to put up his defenses yeah i also find it like just a really fascinating like question to ask is like is in this performance is it, is it too pure to actually live in the world safely and i mean because that's like ultimately one of the ideas that it's wrestling with like is is zazzy beats his character like just too nice um too open-hearted right too vulnerable yeah. Um, and I think that she's able not only to bear that vulnerability like you're talking about, but she's able to respond when that is being questioned and when that is being put against her. Um, and I think the way that almost almost more powerful than the open heartedness for me in, in terms of the emphasis on the role is her ability to sort of absorb that and and then project back, continue to project back a layer of warmth, unlike something like Tony Hale's character. Um, which I think also is a solid performance, but like he lashes out, right? Like he 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 goes back and does something different um, when it, when that's when he's faced with you know his ultimate you know fate in this in this process. Yeah. Um, all right, let's get our winners, Paul. Uh, Kati Mori, Will of Fortune Fantasy. I think that um, I think that the key to that performance is the moment at the end when she's on the bus with him. And that's really the moment that like really broke me emotionally. And that made really drove home where her character was at in life and how this guy thought of her in a specific way. And she didn't realize what she meant to him or didn't mean to him. And she's just, I think that just also just like the performance of her reading the excerpt from the novel is so oh, well yeah. performed because you can just see all the gears turning of what she is really trying to do in the moment and what she, how she's trying to adapt on the fly to the way that the professor is reacting um that and it's a perfect for me a perfect type of supporting performance in words like she's not in it the whole movie obviously because of the, the structure of the movie but like i just walk away from the movie just constantly thinking about her character and every single moment she's doing she's that performance is so special to me. it's like wheel of fortune and fantasy has won two scotties this is Katie Moore's <laughs> first win. <laughs> uh, Scott, uh, for me, um, I don't. I, I, I this is the one I was like most scared to say my winner because I didn't know if I was going to get shade from you guys or not. But I am giving King Richard an Oscar, and it's Anjanou Ellis. Uh, I think no, the she's performance. Incredible. She yeah, the best I mean, scene for sure. This is, I feel like the Will Smith and like him winning an Oscar, fine, whatever. I don't really have an opinion about that. Um, and like King Richard getting so many, like 
sort of the negativity in some circles around that i feel like this has really overshadowed what is just like a genuinely amazing performance the fact that that will smith is like a lock for an oscar and she's like clearly better than him in the movie in my opinion is like pretty wild um she steals the, the movie from him in the middle like in broad daylight she like steals the movie in <laughs> yeah. the scene in the kitchen she literally grabs the movie and is I like mean, nope yeah, this is not scene. it's the best scene is like yeah. and i will take some of that please <laughs> um yeah no that's exactly how i felt and it's like, look, it's not like she's a brand new actress who who hasn't been acting for 20 years or whatever, right? But, I mean, she just, like, absolutely stands... Listen, we didn't do a breakthrough performance, but for me, this is a performance that, like, takes her up a level as an actor and potentially, like, hopefully leads to her becoming a bigger a bigger name. You know, obviously, she was yeah, had yeah. decent roles in a lot of movies, but I hope that... I mean, this she was lead, great you know, in Lovecraft Country, which isn't a movie, but, you know, mm-hmm. a miniseries. Um, she plays a pretty significant supporting role, especially in the back half of that, of that mm. season. Um, and she's and she's fantastic. She's even better in this. I think she's amazing. The sort of the strength and power she brings to that. Um, you know, I think part of part of the performance is always how it's written, and she's given moments to shine. Um, but she grabs those in in like the face of you know a towering actor like Will Smith, who it would be easy to be intimidated by and to not want to really you know do what she did in the movie to him. Um, but I was just like, I respect it so much. And it was, it was really phenomenal performance. Yeah. I mean, it's a great scene because it's the one scene where I want, like that I wanted the movie to be more of, of like actually interrogating Richard Williams's, you know, plan. It's very much reminiscent of that. And I'm standing here with you scene from fences, I think, where it's like, this guy thinks that the whole world is his point of view. And it's like, Oh, there's another person here who's been here this whole time who, also is, is you know yeah i mean too. clearly jane campion should have been a producer and she would have interrogated the like williams experience a little bit more <sighs> i was hoping we were gonna avoid but, this whole thing you know but yikes. alas alas yeah. well, um, she apologized right? Right. so it's all fine <laughs> i'm kidding well so it was a good apology as, but anyway as for my winner um at the the moment the first trailer dropped with riley keogh going sis 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 i knew that this was the one uh and it wow. was uh this is my pick for best sporting actor charlie jesse buckley loses to sis all right tough heck yeah all right sis um no (laughs) such such a uh, again though you think like you know what this character is going to be from watching that trailer that moment in the trailer and it's not really that because there's a perfect mix of like you know there's something like sinister and obnoxious going on in this character and like she's leading zola down a path of ruin but also there's a vulnerability because she herself is being used by, you know, the pimp, by Coleman Domingo's character. Um, and that moment where we actually get to see like her perspective on it, uh, where like the story like takes that little break and says, oh no, actually here's what Stephanie has seen every single, um, y- you know, basically every single event. She's seen it totally differently. Almost like Rashomon Last Duel style, like what now? Here's how she's seen everything. Um, and it's again it's it's perfect for like yes she's vain and like vapid and sees this story in such an exaggerated way but also she is a victim in her own way um because of her relationship with coleman domingo and uh, there so you it makes sense right that there's there ends up being this sort of unspoken bond between her and zola as both as women finding themselves in um this dangerous situation in which a man is you know a large part of it um 
they just use their they, they just treat the situation in, in a very different fashion and stephanie's confidence um you know she goes a step further with what's going on i don't want to spoil too much about zola but um yeah i love the movie uh her performance is so much fun but also like it's not just fun it's not just this caricature it's not just like her with this crazy these you know these braids and doing the black scent like that's not it's not just that listen white trash riley keo is an entire subgenre of movie that has it existed is. for probably the last 10 or so years there's like many multiple examples of this um, it feels like this is her most like this is the most of that like subgenre of movies that like this is her going all the way with it maybe i don't know i just watched american honey, you watched it's, american pretty, honey yeah. it's pretty up there i would say um it pretty is, up yeah. there but yeah so that, yeah so we, so we said our winners i do want to talk a little bit about the sort of um the martha plimpton thing because yeah, I, was gonna I know that you had you had, had to the mass women i had yeah, you had as my number six you had, you had Anne Dowd, Scott, and I, I obviously I understand just because of her place in the industry why she's sort of the one getting discussed. I think Martha Plimpton is a much better performance, honestly. I don't think Anne Dowd's bad at all, but I think like the moment where she's talking about her son's jersey, like that is, oh, yeah. god damn, Brutal. that like, just runs you over. And she is the most restrained of any of them really throughout the movie, I would say. Like she is holding so much back and sort of when she does release it. That's when, that's when to me, the movie kicked into sort of another gear. And God, she's just as bring like this intense pain that she doesn't jason isaacs thinks he has an idea of what to do with his pain she sort of has no clue i think and that's what makes her character really like oh my god paul's just, just pro victim here really tough. just not not really thinking about what the movie wants him to think about in terms of thinking about the other side of yeah. the of the situation <laughs> sure. yeah okay. i'll admit i kind of think uh maybe i just picked ann dowd because it's ann dowd i mean again i do think she is great in the movie but she's just such a versatile <laughs> actors like she can be like so scary at times like if you watch compliance or like the leftovers on you know tv show like she is can be just like really sinister but also she has this like in like something like mass she's like this like grandmotherly like well-intentioned like quality about her that i think is really you know suits the movie um, as a person who like is just trying to make things right and ju just wants the best for wants the best possible outcome for this whole thing. But like sometimes intentions aren't aren't enough. Um, so there are some situations where like your well-meaning, um, you know, it isn't going to cut it. And we kind of see her broken down by that over the course of the movie. So well, um, I mean, one of the reasons why I didn't put one of them in, in my top five is because I just had them both sitting there on my long list. I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. So I'm just going to not include either of them, which may or may not be what happened at the Oscars as well. So there you go. Part of me did debate just All putting right. them both in. As, and and as hey, I, I, again, I, I didn't get to mention her. Amy Simons and No Sudden Move is a performance that early on, I was like, this is actually incredible. And no one's talking about this performance. And it really held on for me throughout the year. Um, I think that, again, like she's sort of this housewife is put in this position where she's not active in any of these choices. It's just things are being inflicted sort of upon her because of the circumstances of David Harbour's life and the way these men invade her home. And um, the way that she communicates her feelings about her son and her husband and um, her desperate attempts really to hold them together as a family is like, yeah, I was really, really impressed by it. And I, I've always really liked Amy Simons as a performer, but that performance, I was like, Whoa, this is nobody's talking about this, but I really think that she's doing really excellent, excellent work in that movie. 
I'm embarrassed. I still haven't seen no sudden move, especially because I liked Kimmy Crazy. so much. Crazy. Yeah. Um, a couple of people that like just missed for me, just to say a couple of names, um, Ruth Nega in passing, um, Catherine Hunter in the tragedy of Macbeth, I thought was phenomenal as the witches, um, Camille Cotton in Stillwater. And, uh, and then for my fun pick, I picked, I put Ana de Armas in No Time to Die in there just cause like you talk about a scene stealing, like one scene that that was definitely her in that movie. Um, all right. Adapted screenplay. Uh, Scott, your nominees. Ooh, that's me. Uh, David Lowry for The Green Knight. Jane Campion for The Power of the Dog. John Spates, Denny Villeneuve, and Eric Roth for Dune. Maggie Gyllenhaal for The Lost Daughter. And Ryusuke Hamaguchi and Takamasa Oe for Drive My Car. Uh, okay, I had Maggie Gyllenhaal for The Lost Daughter. I had Jane Campion for The Power of the Dog. I had Janixa Bravo and Jeremy O'Harris for Zola. I had Ryusuke Hamaguchi and his co-writer for uh, Drive My Car. And I had Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and Nicole Hall Center for The Last Duel. Paul? Uh, yeah, so I had um, Ryusuke Hamaguchi and Takamasa Oe for Drive My Car. I had Nicole Hall Center, Matt Damon, and Ben Affleck for The Last Duel. I had David Lowry for The Green Knight. I had Hideaki Anno for Neon Genesis Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 Thrice Upon a there Time. And I also had uh, Joanna Hogg for The Souvenir Part 2. Oh, yes. What a juxtaposition. Evangelion <laughs> and The Souvenir Part yeah. 2. You know, I'm actually kind of mad at myself for not putting The Green Knight in there now that you guys both mentioned it. Because, like, the way that it makes that, like, old English, like, folktale basically into something incredibly modern is like so impressive uh so i don't know what i would bump out i mean i have the lost daughter at number five on my list but like that just doesn't feel right to me either because i thought that was uh, for all for, for for what i understand elena ferrante's writing is just like very dense and like yes. a lot to process on the page yes. so like <laughs> being able to distill it as well as i feel like maggie Hall did into a cohesive movie that you you understand you know the thematic thrust of, of what's going on i feel like was was very impressive uh but we all had drive my car i think it's just kind of a no-brainer like yeah i think that right, i'm the, gonna give myself an hour to talk about this so just we're, we're very <laughs> i think that it you know that obviously the movie has a lot in common with burning right the 2018 film um but i think specifically like adapting murakami is like just like really fucking difficult because the things that make his story so special are things that are really hard to translate to other mediums, I think. And also so many of the stories are so short and so brief, but the way that Hamaguchi changes and adds so much of what the women are thinking, I think, because, you know, with Murakami, that's always been a bit of a weakness, I'll say, is the female perspective or lack thereof in his stories. Um, but how it translates those ideas into this huge odyssey where it's, not just an emotional journey, but I mean, the way that the first 40 minutes of the movie sort of sets up what the rest of the movie is and how that informs every interaction going forward and um, the sort of how it creates the specter. Rika Kirishima was really close to my best supporting actress, not like lineup. That was like the one who plays the wife. And I think it's because of the way that character's written and the way that, her, again, like she hangs over the rest of the movie and just some of the, the interplay between these characters. It's just like good grief. Like, what a work of adaptation and like such an incredible screenplay. Yeah. I've never seen a movie where like, I feel like dialogue is so suspenseful. 
like you are literally just like on the edge of your seat just to see what like a sentence is going to be. Uh, and it's just because, again, like like I've talked about before, the characters are so emotionally restrained that you know that the dialogue is going to be the, your clue into what they are thinking, what they are feeling. And so, you know, like we're not going to get anything from just looking at these people, really, because that's, you know, how they are. That's also seems to be like what Hamaguchi's style is. Um, but so, you know, the, we have to lay it out in the dialogue. And yeah, I know Scott wants to talk about, too, just the different the blending of the different orcs um, that that Hamaguchi does, because it's not just, you know, the Murakami. It's also Uncle Vanya, and some other stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, that that's Waiting part of dough, the Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like he's blending three stories and then also adding in his own stuff, which I just find it just some of the most amazing, you know, work of adaptation that I've seen. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a sucker always for a screenplay that's going to adapt something and then almost reframe it, right? Like... I talked about, I think on the Drive My Car episode, I talked about how it's one of the things that I admired so much about Little Women. I mean, that's not like an insightful comment to say that it's super fascinating how that story was reframed and restructured and still worked so effectively. Um, and was able to sort of almost bring out new and different emotions. I'm not familiar with the Murakami short story. I'm not even familiar with Uncle Vanya. Um, but getting to sit with it and, and doing research afterwards and rewatching and listening even to Hamaguchi talk about um, his own process and, and specifically the process of writing this, which I'd strongly recommend if you get the chance to look up videos of him giving, you know, interviews and Q&A sessions about the process. It's like, I mean, to me, it's just utterly breathtaking work. The fact that he's able to fold in, like use Murakami as a foundation, layer on, you know, his own original stories. I, don't, I guess I actually don't know what's original, what's fully original, what's not in certain respects, but, you know, specifically content related to the Lamprey, the story that's sort of drawn out over the course of the whole film. Um, and then how also Uncle Vanya is able, not is not just a prop, is not just a mechanism within the plot to move things forward, but actually has, you know, narrative heft and even metatextual weight, I think at times as well. All the themes of all the works are like so intertwined when yeah. you reach the conclusion. And that's, yeah, you, you just, just have just to, like, I feel like you have to have such a galaxy brain to just like read all of these different works and be like i mean that that's all thing, connected right? like, and he's able to add in his own on and that that's the part that i feel like i come back to it's like not only is he able to like be to, to like read the, these works see how they are you know related <clears throat> related to each other and tie them together thematically he's able then to like say hold my beer here's some more stuff um and for interrogate this. his own way of telling stories like also. yeah exactly um i just i mean this is I, I guess I don't even care. Like I'm spoiling my wonder, but like this is like one of the most breathtaking pieces we of adaptation know. that I've seen for years. Um, I'm just really, I'm just really sort of astounded by it. Yeah, yeah we can just go and get into our wins now, and then talk about the other nominees. Yeah. I mean, my yeah, win yeah, is sure. also driving my car. Um, look, my literally my sixth place in original screenplay was Hamaguchi's, co you know, screenplay for Wife of a Spy that he co-wrote with Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Like <laughs> clearly, something yeah. about the way that he writes. Gucci had. Um, gets into the into my brain yeah hamaguchi gang gucci um yeah it's really really special stuff and um worth celebrating i think yeah uh, uh, harvey what was your winner 
it was the last duel. I did have uh, drive my car <laughs> in order to, but uh, yeah. Bro hasn't I, even seen Rashomon. Come on. Okay. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> I'm just so. <laughs> hasn't even seen Hoodwinked. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hasn't seen Vantage Point. <laughs> we were so worried about. I have seen Vantage Point multiple times, actually. Oh, but, um, multiple times. <laughs> yeah. I have a DVD sitting right on my shelf over there. That doesn't mean anyway. you watched it multiple times, Paul. <laughs> Matthew Fox supremacy. Um. No, the last duel. Um, yeah, I was just so impressed. Like the decision to Rashomon, it is like what makes it work because it isn't just. It it becomes in that moment not just a straightforward tale of like, you know, this horrible crime that happened um, a long, long time ago that feels kind of relevant today. But um, also, it becomes a, an interrogation of how we tell the stories of these horrible things that happen and the subtle variations in the uh screenplay like the subtle variations in each of the narratives sometimes uh, the not so subtle variations sometimes also. yeah sometimes. yeah but, and some of that is the actors performances too i'll give i'll give you that but like um i think the like decision sometimes to just change like one word um you know between the narratives say, say so much like i I, we were we were really worried about this movie. I think when we, leading up to it, just hearing what the subject matter is, you know, you got Ridley Scott, you got Matt Damon, you got Ben Affleck, you got all these men involved and whatnot. Um, but I'm sure Nicole Holofcener ended up being a very important presence in this whole thing. I mean, you know, she writes that last segment from Jodie Comer's perspective, from Marguerite's perspective, um, but also in just centering everyone um so Wait, but I, Matt Damon just, wrote the last segment no I'm just kidding they all took turns no I'm just kidding maybe it just exceeded my expectations so much that and that's why I I loved it because I think it finds a way to again like I've I've had trouble with movies like Promising Young Woman for example which like just are about did not think things. that was going to get invoked today did not <laughs> are about similar things but just muddle the point so much with genre and everything else you want to say about that is wrong with that movie but here they get the point across this i i feel like this is the type of movie where you have to sledgehammer the point home i was gonna say it's way. pretty heavy-handed <laughs> yeah no i feel like you have to but also it still finds time for those moments of nuance again and i think that's all about the the rashomon style structure so the fact that it's able to do both of those things is like that is perfect that is like exactly what i want from a movie that is about these ideas well i think that the key difference though with this and rashomon is the way that it like officially declares that there is a specific point of view that is like, this is the truth. And also just ending with that, um, that closer. And then that just being it. And also just the final moment. I know this is sort of also a directing choice, but the note that the movie leaves you on, I think is so perfect when it's just her looking at all the, all of this crowd adoring him for what he did. And then she's left with, with what she's left with, which is not much. That, that, and like I talked about before, when they, stare across at the, the like the battlefield at each other just they they don't say anything just her and, and uh matt damon's character look at each great other. great screenplay and, moment well don't say anything <laughs> it, it's as you know dialogue is not the only thing in screen 1917 no, got nominated for an oscar but um but they look just, across the battlefield at each other and you just wonder get out of here you, know, you still mute you after Matt Damon has gone to all this and fought Jean and won and all this and is all bloodied and beaten, you still wonder, does he even believe his wife still at this point? Or was this all about something else? Does it matter? I, to think him? That's perfect I don't thing. think it, honestly, the thing of the, the no, movie, I don't yeah. think his character cares whether she cares or not. I don't think he ever yeah. really did. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, that's the thing about Rashma. I, 
I feel like Rashman kind of ruined this movie for me when I watched it. I mean, not not to be like, I don't mean to sound like <laughs> guy guy who it. saw his first Curacao. No, I, I know exactly. I don't mean to sound like a dick about <laughs> this, but it's like that, that movie is doing so many so many more interesting things thematically than this. That it it's not fair, but like it did sort of tick down the last duel in my head. Um, Listen, just don't watch after. Hoodwink. It'll get even worse. I mean, the emotional depth that you mine from the frog Man, police you, officer. I want to start thinking Hoodwink's like your favorite movie of all time. You will literally. I've seen it like four times. So anyway, um, enough about uh, that. So as, as far as getting to some of the other nominees, yeah. um, one that I really want to talk about is I so we, so we mentioned obviously the Green Knight, which again, like yeah, the way that it takes that poem and makes it into the cinematic experience and journey and turns it into an adventure movie, which is like just like a really sort of fun idea and the little interstitials that it has. I think those come at really interesting points as well. Um, but uh, Evangelion, you know, is a movie that it's hard to put in some of the categories, right? Cause it's not going to be in my acting categories, sure. what have you, but Why not? to me, it's, it's the culmination of, well, part of the reason is like, there's the whole dub versus sub, uh, which actor to sure. award or what have you. Cause I watched once each in both, but I think, especially as a work of adaptation, like, I mean, so it's a movie that is the culmination of this, you know, 20 plus year multimedia franchise. And it's really looking at itself and its creator in the mirror and saying like, what do you ultimately want this to be? What do you want the legacy of this to be? And how can you change that? Um, It's just incredible. And it's it's like, it's a tough thing to like recommend to people to be like, Hey, watch an entire anime 26 episode series and then a movie and then four more movies. But it's like, to me, this is like one of the more special properties for me, media properties in general. And um, this, the way that it's it's written is like, I was like really blown away by where like characters take, you know, where he takes certain characters. And it's just extraordinary to me. Doesn't one of the, the movies retell the, the show, the, the, the series though? There, I mean, that's like not really one of the movies. I mean, this reboot is like a reimagining of the, se- of the show. But like okay. it means so much more if you've seen it first, because then the changes are sp- so specific and they they symbolize, you know, change. You know, it's complicated, but it's it's an incredible experience. The one I want to mention is Zola, just because it's like a it's a new type of adaptation, right? We've never seen a Twitter thread adopted into a adapted into a movie before, um, and I feel like it it manages to do that without being as annoying as Twitter threads can some sometimes be. This is not. Seth Abramson or whatever his name is going off for a 10,000 tweet threads on the, the impeachment hearings or something. This is, they, they actually bring this uh, really to life in a way that like still like it's, it's true to its roots. Like you, you have some like great use of voiceover, right. To like get that real sense of Zola's voice, like her real, the real almost authorship that was put into the, this Twitter thread, like this, how it became this, bigger thing not just because of the story but also because of like her voice um in telling the story and i think you get a really good sense of that from the screenplay but then like yeah like the other decisions like to give us stephanie's like short thread on this at, at that you know one point in the movie i think is really smart um yeah i don't know it, it feels very fresh very contemporary i think they did a really great job of taking this you know new form of content and making it cinematic zola is like one of those weird properties that like blurs the line of adapted and original right like why is why is a 43 tweet thread more of an adaptation than like paul thomas anderson talking about real stories that he heard about people in hollywood like i don't really want to go dive too deep on this but like i don't really know 
like I can understand something. I mean, drive my cars may be just too direct of an example to not reference. Like when you're actually little women or whatever it might be, like you're taking this this book or the short story or whatever, and you're directly taking putting something, putting that and translating it. And I guess you're kind of doing that with a tweet thread. Also, it sucks it like that Zola couldn't get a writing credit. I know yeah. it's like it's well, based that, on that, my... That uh, does suck because well, what sure. I was going to say... Well, like Elena Ferrante is not getting a writing credit. Like, I don't know. That's true, I guess. But anyway, like I think because it has such an authorial voice about it, kind of like I was saying, Zola's like voice, I feel like really comes through in the Twitter thread. I feel like there is some adaptation that is going on there of, you know, bringing... Her, not just the story itself, again, but her telling of the story to the screen. Again, I just think that, like, you don't know what X person who told Paul Thomas Anderson the story's, like, voice was, right? Like, he could have been. I'm just saying, like, I think it blurs the line a yeah. little bit. I'm just using it as an example. It's just something that struck sure. me when you were talking about it's it. It's better than Damien Chazelle being an adapted because he adapted his own short film that is just, like, the shorter version <laughs> of the movie he made. Well, Ra but. Rachel Sennett is the same thing, right? I mean, she didn't get nominated, but, I mean, yeah. that was... You mean... Uh, Jibba Baby was yeah. the same thing. Emma Seligman, or, yeah. Oh yeah, I guess it's not right. I'm con I've confused <laughs> anyway. myself. Yeah, anyway, moving on. Um yeah, we haven't talked about the Lost Daughter. Incredible piece of adaptation. I mean, you briefly mentioned it, Scott, about how you didn't want to exclude it from your list, but incredible, incredible work. Um did it I can't even remember this point because I don't I mean the Oscars, I just try to block out most of it. Did it get it's it nominated. got nominated for okay, yeah. thank God. Yeah. Um cool. Great nominate great stuff. Dune also got nominated. I go listen to my thoughts about Dune getting nominated for adaptive screenplay versus other categories on a different episode of this podcast. <laughs> but I do think it's like, even with those thoughts said, like it's pretty incredible that they were able to take Dune and make it something that was watchable on the screen. Uh, you know, even as someone who hey, loves... Hey, David Lynch. Good movie. Not great. Uh, yeah, I can't speak to it. I haven't seen it. Um, but like just... It, it, I read the book, you know, about a year ago or so now. And... I would, I'm just like, I don't know how you make this into a even a two and a half hour movie. Granted, they're doing it in two parts, but I'm just like, I'm how you translate some of the things. And granted, they they dropped some stuff. They they made decisions about leaving certain parts of the book out or underemphasizing other other parts or de-emphasizing them. I guess that's actually the word. Um, but like those choices were just brilliant, I think, because they made something that was just so much more accessible and watchable without losing the sort of like the spirit of of the source material. And I think that's just again like a really another impressive example of of adaptation to me knowing knowing what to include and knowing what to leave out i think is an art that often um it doesn't get talked about because you don't again like oftentimes you don't know what someone has chosen to leave out um if it's an original screenplay but adapted is one where you can dive a little bit deeper um when it's more a direct source material with uh with the lost daughter that you mentioned scott i think the thing for me is like the way that it it blends those past and present narratives in a way that never like feels distracting always it, like it feels like it's flowing very naturally like you yeah. know lita olivia coleman lita sees something or hears someone say something and it just like triggers a memory like it feels like you are actually watching her own memories being played out like uh, totally. it's not just like here's a flashback to tell the story like it, it all flows really well I and mean, i think that a lot of that is in the screenplay all right, uh, that is, finishes, uh, I think, the first half of our category. So we're going to take a short break. And after we come back, we're going to do the big ones, including leading performances, director, and our favorite scenes of the year. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, we are trudging through our awards for uh, the films of 2021. We're now on to our lead performance awards. We're going to start with Best Actress. I think it's my turn to go first. Um, so my nominees for Best Lead Actress are Kristen Stewart in Spencer, uh, Renata Reinsva in The Worst Person in the World, Alana Hyam in Licorice Pizza, uh, Isabel Furman in The Novice, and Olivia Coleman in The Lost Daughter. Uh, Paul. Uh, I have Renata in The Worst Person in the World. I have Alana Haim in Licorice Pizza. I have Honor Swinton Byrne in The Souvenir Part 2. I have Yu Aoi in Wife of a Spy. And I have Paula Beer in Undine. And Scott. A lot of, a lot of overlap for the Scots in this one. Uh, Alana Haim for Licorice Pizza. Kristen Stewart for Spencer. Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter, Penelope Cruz for Parallel Mothers, and Renata Reinsva for The Worst Person in the World. Undina, I didn't even think. I mean, I, I kind of counted that towards my 2020, honestly, when I watched it. Uh, but that's well, I watched it okay. for a New York Film Festival, but it was not released until yeah. 2021, and that's sort of when it was award eligible and everything. Yeah, I just that's a. I was on the fence about the last slot, and I just think like. Paula Beer is like I was like man she's like she was really incredible in that in a way that Christian I like, Petzl gets great great performances out of his lead actresses yeah, yeah. Um, good pick uh, yeah so Scott we definitely had a lot of we had four in common there right uh, so Renata Reinsva made all of our lists um, as did Alana which, Heim yeah yeah and Alana Heim that's true uh, both like people we'd never seen before this uh, well I mean. Uh, in terms of films, I've seen Alana Haim plenty of completely times unknown this. human beings before this. Definitely may have seen her in concert, as a matter of fact. But uh, but yeah, uh, I mean, I think pretty incredible debuts and two characters that feel philosophically somewhat similar to each other uh, in terms of they that. be running, they be running. Yeah, they they be running. If their philosophy just, were running, then yes, the place that they they find themselves in life. Um, Alana Hyam for me, like the the scene, the, the the scene that I really come to love in the in this movie after seeing it several times now is he struggled right through it several whole, times, but you finally come yeah. to love this scene. One right scene, he the, finally found a good one, a good one. Yeah. yeah. Right after the truck incident, when she's sitting there on the curb um, mm -hmm. and not, doesn't even really say anything. I love what Paul Thomas Anderson does in the scene too, of like he has Bradley Cooper walk through. And basically, she has on one side of her, you have like, oh, here's the adult male, Bradley Cooper. On the other side of her, you have like the younger male. Uh, you have Cooper Hoffman, you know, being dumb and him and his friends acting like they're like jacking off, basically using the uh, ho the gas pump for the, uh, the van. And she is here in the middle of it. And like, it's, you know, again, a perfect way to frame that is like, on both sides of her like undesirable options in a way or like people acting sort of with the same level of immaturity and then she like turns around and like directly parallel to her also in the middle is like the councilman wax poster and it's like oh here this is her moment of thinking this is my answer to like finding um you know the the right person right place to be um so i i love like she is at her crossroads so many times in the movie um and she can't she can't help but be drawn to to cooper hoffman's character um and 
when you know the, the another scene is like when he decides to go take the car right like he takes the car and she's yelling at him like don't go you know you better not drive the car you better not like leave you better not walk out of here that, that scene is really like because it starts off with her being like you know she's so um <laughs> she is she is so uh kind of over cooper hoffman's antics um and she's like trying to do this very serious like film she wants this filming of councilman wax to be this very serious thing and she just doesn't think that he's a serious person but then he like smokes the cigarette smokes the cigarette with like no problem he's like ready to go out there and drive the car for the first time in the movie he like shows that he's he's growing up a little bit too and like all of a sudden she's like no wait a minute i can't like I still want to be with him in some regard. And like when he leaves and start the first time he starts to act like he can actually succeed independently of her, she, she's like, I want to, you know, she runs after him. So the shift in that scene is really effective. It's just a great character. It's a great performance. My favorite acting in any movie is when characters look at a poster and then they're looking at a poster. Uh <laughs> I totally agree. I totally agree. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think love to minimize her... very profound <laughs> oversimplifying, but yes, her her contempt is sort of maybe my favorite part of the performance, and like her annoyance with any and anyone around her, including her own sisters, her own parents, uh, Gary you. Valentine, obviously. I mean, the scene with Skylar Gisondo where he refuses to say grace is just like some of the fu the funniest shit ever, and just because the way she reacts to it with just like this disbelief that someone is this ridiculous but also like there are times where she is just so so caught by people and um her in, realizing in real time how foolish jack holden was is also a really special piece of acting where she's like oh no like i thought this was a grown man and he had his shit together but he's like just as bad if not worse than all the other guys sort of that i've, I've sort of come around in the in the recent past the scene too that's really rough is just like when she's in the bathing suit at this at the sale day and all of a sudden mm -hmm. she sees gary with the girl that's his age in the back room and she just like is in pure desperation mode that is like she just has so many moments like that that are just really special and she has that ineffable quality that it's it sounds dumb because it's like hard to really describe so it's maybe bad you know podcast content but it's like a special quality that I, you can't put a pin on and that she just has and that you never want to take your eyes off of her yeah, it's definitely the scene in the in the in the store that you were just referencing, Paul, that sticks out to me when I think of like if I were to put a reel together for her, it includes some running. Um, and then it would include, I think, mostly the scene. It just feels like it's that piece where for so much of the movie, she's the one that's like it she has been portrayed as this person who is at least in control of what she wants, I think. And then it sort of just so quickly is turned on its head in this moment of like all of a sudden she doesn't seem to have the upper hand and her relationship with, with Gary. Um, I think she's able that like, she's just so smoothly able to flip those, that switch and, and very believably act in a way that I think other people um, would in the same situation, other like, you know, jealous, you know, young adults, um, teenagers would act in the same situation. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's absolutely a special scene and, and moment and, you know, maybe it's not particularly subtle, but I think that there's a lot involved with switching gears so quickly. And, um, you know, she's she's so used to having sort of feeling like she has Gary in her back pocket um, that she's found herself in a different position. Yeah, she likes she likes feeling like she could move on without him at any time. 
but she doesn't actually want to move on without him. Uh, because again, like the scene you're talking about in the scene um, that I mentioned too, where he try he just drives off without her, or like all of a sudden she realizes, no, I actually do want to be with this person. But anyway, um, great performance. Uh, Renata Reinsville, also a great performance that we all had. Um, thoughts? I won't steal someone else's <laughs> that, thunder. That Paul, go ahead. <laughs> Move to silence, yeah. I mean, what I mean, what is there to say? She is the movie. She is the moment, if you will, as the kids say. The worst uh, person in the world. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I think people watching would be like, "Yeah, she's like kind of rough," but you know, there are maybe worse people out there. Uh, yeah. yeah, I can think of like a the... few worse people in history than her. Yeah, I can, <laughs> I can think of some currently today that might be just worse in history. Yeah, just in history, not today. Uh, but yeah. no, she. <laughs> it's those moments of realization, I think, where I think she thinks that her life is one thing and then she is just reminded so quickly that it is something totally different. Uh, the, and the scene at the, where the wedding that she sort of just like sneaks into where she's like, you can feel that she's like, I shouldn't be here, but like, I want to be here and I don't want to be somewhere else. And her feeling of unease, even early on when she's out at these public events and she sort of seems out of her depth and it's the search constant searching that she's going through. And, um, she just is someone that is so magnetic and that's a word I think that's sometimes overused in acting, but like, my God, does it fit her like to a T. Yeah. I like those scenes too, that you're meant, like the dialogue that goes on between her and like, uh, Axel's friends or whatever, when they're out at like the country estate or whatever, um, mm -hmm. just her sort of like trying to mask her disillusionment with constantly being asked these questions about like, you know, are you ever going to get a real job? Like, what's your career going to be? You know, what, why haven't you figured it out by now? Basically, um, given your, given what your age is, I think is really effective. And then just the euphoria of the, the running again, she be running that, that whole scene of like, just being really swept away. And suddenly, you know, she just gets to stop everything that is giving, giving her stress. Um, Gotta say she's, and, a, she's at a, a brisk jog at best though. She's not, she's not sprinting. Like Alana yeah. or Tom Cruise or insert or Robert person. Redford and the Sting, you know, a lot of iconic sure. runners in movies. She didn't. She didn't put it all. Put her all into that. I'm just gonna say it. <laughs> wow, yeah. tough, tough take. Yeah, it's great though. It's definitely one of those like a Star Is Born type performances that um, you know you just. You really I can't wait for her House of Gucci. Uh, yeah, on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Who else no, do we want to talk about? Kristen Stewart. Well, sorry, I'm going to get my, uh, to say my piece about someone oh, who sure, I also yeah. nominated, but uh, <laughs> okay, after go ahead. throwing a little shade uh, at, at the performance. No, I think that it's, it shows restraint to not go full sprint in the performance. <laughs> I, no, I, I'm cracking Paul up. This is great. I can't believe it's my running, my running commentary that's getting him. Uh, I do think that you talk, as much as you talk about you know, um, Andrew Danielson lie, and his performance, I, I think that like it's really overwhelming. I think that some of their scenes, I mean, the scene, this is talking, I guess, a little bit of spoilers, but like when they do break up and when basically anytime they're like having an argument and then like the last scene um, at the hospital. I, yes, I feel like it really is like a masterful performance from him, but it, I still don't think that it would it would resonate as deeply without the other side of that coin. And I think she's no, able no. to sort of yeah. meet um on they're able to meet on the same wavelength which is what i think makes it so powerful and 
I just find that the sort of acknowledgement, especially the the breakup scene where she's just like, I have all these things that I want and yet I'm still not happy and I don't know what like the way that she's able to just sort of like flatly melancholically deliver that like with the same sort of emptiness that she's describing in herself. Like I just find that really powerful um, thinking, you know, I, I guess I, I just feel a lot of, of that, I think at times. And I felt like I felt that way in the past about different situations where I feel like I should be happy, but I am not. And the only way I know how to, to not be this way is to not be with you. Like that, that, that is like not a conversation under side, but it's definitely something that I felt and that I, that I see and that I recognize. And I find that to be just really powerful in the way that she was able specifically able to deliver that is what, is what made it so powerful for me personally. And I, I hesitate to compare her to this character, but it reminds me a lot of the way they talk about the Joker in the Dark Knight about just like being a dog chasing <laughs> chasing cars and like yeah. not knowing what to do with it. If she like once she gets a hold of something that she wants, she's like, oh, okay, and then like sort of like the, like loses interest and um, sort of pursues another thing and has no idea like what that means to her. Kind of, um, she's an agent of chaos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She just wants to watch, you know. The kind bum, of Oz, bum, Oz bum. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I was one of the most outliers, right? Um, I guess one. I mean, I've talked a bit about. I guess not too much about Souvenir Part Two. Uh, just the way that they return to the story and that Honor Swittenburn has to go on this emotional journey now um, with these different relationships in her life and her having to sort of move on from what the relationship in the first Souvenir meant to her and, and redefining what that means for her as a person now and discovering her sense of self because she is such like a passive um, actor in her own life in the first movie and how this is her sort of taking control of her own narrative in a literal sense when she's making her film and the way that she sort of loses her way and has this disconnect with her mother but then comes to sort of realize who she is and that's why like um, the end of the movie is so satisfying is because you go on this entire journey with her and um, she has like this sort of pensiveness that that is apparent, but um, you can feel that she wants to sort of break free from that. And she tries up like lots of different things to try and, to try and change her circumstances. But um, it's those attempts and her, her pain and difficulty and then her growth and the way that she embraces change as a person that really makes it special. Again, sounds very similar to the two uh, performances we already talked about or two characters we already talked about. A little, a little more reflective, I think, and not as like, Acting on id, I think, is those people. I think she's mm. more deliberate, and with that's a it's a yeah. different type of performance. So, yeah. uh, my one outlier, I believe, is Isabel Furman. I don't think anybody else had um, her for the novice. Which what I will I will just say that was my runner up to Alana Heim. Alana Heim is my winner, um, unsurprisingly. But um, yeah, Isabel Furman, like like one of the most intense performances I've seen, in, like in one of the most intense movies that I watched, um, you know, last year. Um, I called this, like, her character is like a type A-plus personality. Just like the, I, I will do anything. I will go to any lengths, no matter what it physically or mentally or emotionally does to me in order to achieve what I want. And that, like, eyes on the prize is, like, it's, it's captivating just to watch um how single-mindedly she pursues this goal and again the the physicality of the performance too like you know because there's all these rowing scenes and like you really just get the her sense of exhaustion but also like the unstoppable adrenaline rush of like i have to keep going because i have to be the best i have to excel at what i'm doing um 
I thought it was, um, you know, again, another sort of debut. I mean, she's been in other movies, but like another real breakthrough, like amazing, like Star is Born type performance uh, from an actress this year. For me, the yeah, my winner. Oh, go. I'm just going to say, yeah, because Scott already said his winner. My winner is Renata Renzo. I and mean, we, we, we have talked about her at length. Um, but I just, she's a performer that I'm like so struck by. And now I'm like putting her in anything and everything. And, um, it's tough because maybe this is just the perfect role for her, you know, as a, as a performer. Maybe it plays so keenly to her strengths, but um, but it, it does do that. And she is perfect for this kind of movie. And the movie, like, just would not be the same without her. Could be the same for Alana Heim. I guess we'll see. Yeah. Who's your winner, Scott? Olivia Coleman, undeniable for me. I think I talked about Jesse Buckley earlier and how she was able to sort of tell the other part of the story um in in the flashback sequences in the past and olivia coleman you know i said not as ugly a, of a character of at least immediately on the screen but i think the way that she's able to sort of you know 20 years removed or whatever the number is from the past the way that she's able to sort of just like live with her ugliness she just sort of accepts it right it's pretty incredible i think what she's able to deliver in a way that um, you, as it unveils her history, how she's accepted that, how she's reliving that, but she's accepted it. And she is who she is. And you're just going to have to live with that. Like you're just going to have to, the audience is going to have to accept that this person is not necessarily a completely good person. Um, and I, you know, I could, I could go on for hours, but I'm, I'm just like constantly mesmerized by, by Olivia Coleman's ability to act um, and take on almost any role. Uh, not chameleonic, because I think she's always recognizable, but the way she's able to just believably submerge herself in the characters that she that she undertakes is it's remarkable. Honestly, in general, all the performances in the movie I think are like pretty incredible. Like even oh, yeah. the yeah. even like the Peter Sarsgaards and the Paul Mescals and the Ed Harris's like or Dagmara Dominic Dominic or whatever excellent yeah. um, are really excellent too yeah yeah the only other one I wanted to call out was uh, Penelope Cruz because that was like my one outlier um talk about mm -hmm. you know performances that are that are much less that I think it's probably like the most different of any of the ones that we've talked about I mean I guess maybe Isabel Furman um is different in a way too although it's still very interior I feel like there's so much about Penelope Cruz's character that's not interior there's so much that's exterior about this particular role with parallel mothers. And it's about this sort of person who wants a lot of things, right? And, or maybe she doesn't even know she wants certain things, but she's like goal oriented. She wants to have her town um, excavated by this forensic archeologist um, to sort of unearth this history. But along the way, she's like so driven by her past and she wants to project that onto other people. Like I think some of those powerful scenes are the ones that are less about the sort of like direct drama of the film, the one that's more on the surface and, and also just more about her trying to like teach Melina Smith's um, character about the past and the reality and, and, and the present of Spain in a way that sort of connects back to the, to the broader narrative, sort of the beginning and the end of the film um, in a way that it, you know, the more that I, I sit with it, the, the more times I rewatch the movie, it be, it feels like it becomes more, better connected um, than it was 
uh, the time before I watch it. And I find that some of the most powerful work that, that Penelope Cruz is doing is, is interweaving this narrative. That's clearly, you know, I don't know if it's on the mind of Penelope Cruz specifically, but certainly on the mind of Pedro Almodovar. Um, and I think she's able to just sort of flawlessly weave that into what's otherwise like a sometimes um, soapy, although I don't mean that in a negative way, uh, drama throughout the, throughout the film when just talking about the specifically hers and Molina's children. Yeah, I th it's Parallel Mothers is a movie that I I think maybe I just saw a little too late in terms of like, I just think things haven't sat with me long enough. That's sort of why the score barely missed out is because I just haven't really had the time to listen to it. And I wonder if with time, maybe Penelope Cruz's performance would grow more in estimation. Sure. Part of it too is just tough because I love her so much in Volver. And so like, I think of her in this sort of, it's not a similar mode, but I think that it's accessing similar emotional beats in a way that like, it's not like it makes the movie any less compelling, but it's almost like a, a gear I've seen her do before. And so maybe that's something I've dinked her for in my mind. I don't know. She's still really incredible, um, but still pretty close. Uh, I guess the one person I haven't really uh, mentioned yet is you, Aoi, from Wife of a Spy. And the track of the movie is so interesting because it's this woman who just learns in so many you know, painful ways that her life, her entire life was built on this premise that is is sort of a false premise and is not quite the life that she thought. And it's the ways that she reacts to that and how she adapts to her evolving relationship to her husband and her world around her totally shifting and changing and they're them being in danger and suddenly having to make really critical decisions about the future of their family. And she just, again, she holds so much at bay, but then there are moments where she really does release it. Um, sometimes verbally and, and sometimes just a purely emotionally. And it's really an incredible performance in, in a movie that I, I was really caught off guard by how much I ended up loving. What I want to watch too, because I did watch my first Kiyoshi Kurosawa film over the past year. So yeah, um, yeah, a, a couple people that just missed for me, um, Rebecca Hall in the night house, um, mm -hmm. always Rebecca Hall. Um, I get through cell and Titan, uh, Rachel Sennett and Shiva Baby and um, Jody. Cohen oh, and we didn't really talk about Kristen Stewart, which you guys no, we didn't, yeah. both had and was really. And anyone who knows me is probably like, why do you not have Kristen Stewart? <laughs> like, I have her for so many other things. Um, I love her as a performer. I think she just barely missed, but the stuff she does, like, especially if you watch her hand acting in Spencer, it like says so much about where she is emotionally and, and as a person in this grand scheme of this family and this government apparatus it's, it's pretty like astounding so yeah it just it feels so much more deeply felt than like your regular biopic performance uh, i've talked about this before but like it, she's not i just don't feel like she's doing an impersonation like you really just feel the depth of her performance like she she definitely went to some place to get to where you know in the right mindset uh, to play this character um she didn't just put on you know some hair and do a little bit of a accent um although she did do those things yeah, she did. <laughs> that's part of the performance but it's not yeah, the yeah. performance um sure and just her you know the way that she conveys that people that feeling of being trapped while also you know in this large expansive place yeah, i mean she's uh, constantly I uncomfortable in the film right like she yeah. never for a moment does she look comfortable um in the movie which and is, also obviously the like state. the meta narrative of her career and how it intertwines with this character, like how much those align is like adds so much to the movie too. 
And when she does actually open up, those are some of the best scenes in the movie, like the scene in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve when she wakes them up and like we actually get to see her happy or when she's with them driving and they have the, you know, sing along to All I Need is a Miracle. Um, you know, I think she really nails those moments as well. Um, all right. Best actor. Uh, we're going to go back to Paul. All right. So in best actor, I have Simon Rex. Red Rocket, Hitotoshi Nishijima for Drive My Car, Oscar Isaac in The Card Counter, I have Stephen Graham in Boiling Point, and Ben Platt in, oh, sorry, just kidding, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and Nick Cage in Pig. Nice. Scott? Yeah. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch for The Power of the Dog, Hitotoshi Nishijima for Drive My Car, Mahershala Ali for Swan Song, Simon Rex for Red Rocket and Winston Duke for nine days. Uh, I had Winston Duke for nine days. I had Benedict Cumberbatch for The Power of the Dog. I had Joaquin Phoenix in Come On, Come On. I had Matt Damon in Stillwater. And I had Simon Rex in Red Rocket. Wow. Cra cra crazy list from Scott Harvey, I got to say. No I, way, I'm man. really caught off guard by that. Great performance. I will you say, Mahershala Ali was, was the most painful cut That's for me. Show. And I, the five, the, in the five slot, it like I spent like out like days just being like, is it him or is it him? And Mahershala was just like, days. barely missed, 15 minutes before barely the podcast. Yeah. So we all had Simon Rex and Red Rocket. Um, Again, another one that like it feels like you don't even really need to explain it. It's just kind of the undeniable live wire energy. Um, I I don't know. Thinking about it, I'm I'm in retrospect. I'm like, is this performance that great, or is it like Sean Baker's direction of it that is so great? I think it's both. Um, I feel sort of the opposite. I'm like, is this just Simon Rex, like being I think Simon Rex? And I think it's just character. Simon Rex. I think, being I think Simon it may Rex. Be it. That's the thing. <laughs> I was well, talking to Scott about to this. Him really like this before so and it's it's a i mean if that is the case then sean baker found the perfect person to play this part right because he normally does i feel like yeah he does that is true but also i think there's like the last moment of red rocket is that's actually so i mean that's some great acting by simon rex that what he does with his face in that last moment um leaves you with a lot of thoughts um about does it this guy did he, <laughs> well, well uh, okay. If you didn't get left with thoughts, I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> he's punching back now. My opinion like on the film. Um, here's, here's, the here's, part where he looked. You, the part where he looked at the poster outside the donut shop. Like I was just moved to tears. Piling on, piling on tonight. I love it. Um, what he does with his face in that scene. Like you, you know, it makes you wonder. Does he really like? Has he all of a sudden realized? um what he's doing what like the reality of what he's doing because he seems to like when he sees strawberry there like in the bikini or whatever um it, there seems to be something that clicks inside of him so that, like it starts off as a smile as like okay you know i'm the same you know mikey that i have been the whole movie but then there's just something that develops on his face that you know a bit more uncertainty about the future and have i made the right decisions here that i think is um a, actually great acting by Simon Rex. It's not just Simon Rex doing Simon Rex um, for me, at least. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, it like the reason that I didn't have it in screenplay, I guess, is because so much of it feels iterative from an actor. And I think it's about him inhabiting like the note where um, the one dude who obviously always brags about beating him in a fight. And when he talks about like, oh, like I, I could beat your he's like, do you want to fight right now? Fight again? He's like, no, absolutely not. Like that moment, like near the end, like slays me. And so much of his comedic timing is like the like is kind of the gem of the performance and like the way he knows when to say things and even his physicality, the way that he like jumps off the bike and just like slams it into the, into the side Kinda of the donut shop. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the sli- like his, his sliminess is so apparent and on the surface. And in that first interaction, you can just already tell like, Oh no, this is like when he starts talking to, to, to Susanna's son's character, you're he, like, Oh boy, this is going yeah. in South fast. Yeah. And even like the, at the very beginning, right. I feel like they really kind of clue you into what he is like. Right I mean, that, that, his, his audition scene, like the way he got the part, which is when he has the conversation with his ex outside of her in door the, at her house, when he's convincing yeah, her well, to let him in. Yeah. I'm thinking about the scene in the kitchen afterwards where mm-hmm. he just literally talks for like five minutes straight. And they're just kind of sitting there at the table. Like <laughs> it's crazy. He's the exact same on the A24 podcast. I swear. Like when I listened to that episode <laughs> that he had with, Angus Cloud, like the guy would not stop talking. It was like pretty wild because it, it made me kind of convinced that it's actually wasn't he wasn't acting very much in the movie, which is like, you know, it is not in terms of like the, the character that he's playing. Obviously, I'm just talking about like his personality of like talking, talking, talking. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I kind of got that vibe. I just felt like I wanted Angus Cloud to talk more on that episode. But um, it, regardless, I think it's still a really strong performance. I mean, also, like if even if you are the perfect for the role, like you can still give a, an incredible performance. And I think that he. I think that he does. Um, yeah, it's just, it's pretty crazy the sort of energy he's able to to harness in the performance. I think that's like, and like maintain that level of energy through the whole film. I mean, you say it's like a super iterative process and not that actors don't prepare, but like, I kind of think this like wasn't an iterative process. They shot this thing on film. They had like only a very limited budget within it. No, they talked a lot in, in the Q&A. They talked about a lot of these decisions where Simon Rex sort of coming up with things on the fly or making slight well, or I, making I believe that but I'm saying it's not iterative though, yeah. right like it's I guess that's oh like, you mean in terms he's almost yeah, yeah. improving it right like yeah yeah um it, it seemed it seemed to me that it's like rather than being this like super honed iterative refined process it's just like you know here's the script you can like tweak it if you want to but just like go for it because bim, it's just, they just instinct have a I guess yeah yeah exactly case. yeah which I think is is almost sort of ties back into what we're saying here around it this instinct it he he does feel like some part of that personality in that character, um, maybe a little bit more than I had originally maybe thought when I first watched the movie. But it's a really strong performance. You can't take your eyes off of him uh, for better or worse, and then it definitely goes for worse at different points um, in the film. You know, fairly quickly to to your all's point. But that's part of the that's part of the the power and and impressiveness of the role is that you can't take your eyes off of it. And like the slight goofiness, I think that comes from like his comedic background goes a long way towards still making you feel like there's he's kind of harmless despite all of the things that he's doing. Like he's just like kind of a goof. Um, so I think that's a strong element of the performance Up to a point. too. Um, you guys had uh, Hidetoshi Nishijima, who was my first one out. I will have to say he was tough, number six. Tough one. decision. Yeah, tough I know. Decision I know. Yeah. But uh, that's why it's my decision, not yours. That's true. Um, <laughs> uh thoughts on this performance i think i mean i think we're all big fans obviously oh i get to speak first (laughs) um look no i'm just messing with you it's fine 
Um, Hitatoshi Nishijima. What I mean, you kind of say like, what is? It? I almost feel the same way. Kind of like you're talking about with Simon Rex. Like, what is there to say about this performance? I just find it. I guess going back to the interiorness of some of the performances we were talking about before, it's an incredibly interior performance. But what is so different than all those other ones we're talking about is that like it sort of like stays interior, right? Like there's so few windows of opportunity to sort of see into the soul of this character. And Scott, you were talking earlier with like the screenplay about how there's so few films where you just like hang on every sentence, every word that someone is saying. I mean, like I was absolutely breathless, you know, hanging on almost every sentence that Hidetoshi Nishijima is like saying in this film throughout, like even in the most like benign scenarios where it doesn't really feel like there's some, you know, intense wisdom that's about to drop or um, this like big plot turning point is going to happen. You, you just hang on his every word. You're utterly captivated. And, and part of that is the construction of the script. Sure. But a huge part of that is also just how you're, you're able sort of to, to deliver that interiority of the performance and how you're able to, draw people into your orbit and bring them in with your gravity and then not let go of them even when it feels like in a normal cadence you might be letting letting go of their uh you know of their attention or of their um of like the, the hold you have over them and he's able to do that you know beat after beat after beat throughout the whole film and you know i think it crescendos in in, in certain moments for sure um and oftentimes those coincide with like the emotional release uh, releases that happen over various points. But it's just so it's so satisfying to be able to like watch a three hour movie where like you really you really want to know what keeps happening next. And, and that what happens next is just people talking usually. Right. Like, yes, there are big moments that 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 are more than just the talking, but um, it is a huge part of it. And to be able to deliver in that way with with the performances part of what makes drive my car really special. And I think in the same way that we talked about the adaptation process, the way that he interweaves the uncle Vanya character and also the character from waiting for Godot into his performance, I think, and brings that sort of NUI about his relationship with his wife and, and his, his child and um, how much he's willing to open up to this, to Tokomira's character, right? This woman that becomes his driver and what he's willing to give to people and what he's not willing to access. And, um, like you can even see it in his, his unwillingness to play the main character in the play. Like there's a reason that he's feeling that specific way for such a long time. And, um, I think like there, it is, it is such a specific, like it's a, the way that Japanese people I think deal with grief is like a lot different culturally than almost any culture. And, he is like the embodiment of like that inability to like put yourself out there and to really express and to sort of like turn the dial so process as opposed to sort of yeah. letting it go yeah um and it's just like a slow drip of emotion that um eventually like builds and builds and builds like near the conclusion of the movie um yeah yeah i Totally agree. And talking about interior performances, I think Benedict Cumberbatch, who we both had, Scott, is also doing something um, and like that. And I think also what's brilliant is also kind of a double dual performance in a way. Like if we want to, you know, bring back. It has a real pivot earlier. Yeah, it has a real pivot he, about halfway through. The artificiality of him in the first half is so it, it you know he 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 nails that like because you watch it again you watch it the first time and you're like what is going on here like something just does not seem right about the way he is so um over the top with just 
his cruelty. Um, sure. yeah. And it turns out, yeah, something is not right. He is playing a part. You know, he's performing. He is trying to channel his, you know. Some would say he's not a cowboy. He's an actor. Yeah. <laughs> and when all of that does get revealed, it becomes that much more interior performance. Um, and we really start to feel the pain that he is, you know, he has inside of him of having number one, lost this person that was so close to him, but number two, not really being able to express how he actually felt about this person because and what he has lost. to maintain yeah. this image. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. I, it, it's, I would just say it's, it's tough for me because I think he is really good in the movie, but I do, I did, I couldn't help feeling that like, I couldn't help but thinking like, other actors that I was like, but this person would crush this role just like 5% more. And so to, I think that's the thing that ultimately held it back from being like in my favorite, favorite performances of the year. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I definitely didn't feel that way while watching the movie. I thought that he yeah. crushed the role. I mean, I, I definitely agree with what Scott's saying. I think it's just like a real, I mean, talk about, I mean, I guess two-hander can mean so many different things, right? But, like, the way that that this film sort of, like, ultimately becomes, in my opinion, like a two-hander between him and Cody Smith-McPhee is, like, I think really mesmerizing in the second half of the film. It's breathless in a, in a way that's very different from Drive My Car. So, like, rather than hanging on every word that someone's saying, although I think that there are moments where you do that, you're, like, hanging on how how phil is going to treat you know the next person he that like comes in front of him right and i think that there's it, it seems really clear how that's going to be in in the first half right when you when you get the performance that scott's talking about this like over the top sort of like toxic male cowboy image or what he believes like a, a cowboy should be right and and trying to be that this like hyper masculine figure but then there's this like strange softness that it sort of appears out of nowhere um, that you realize there is a lot more going on with the character and the way that that sort of onion sort of peels itself back over time. I just, yeah, I loved it. I loved the performance. Um, yeah. I mean, I could talk more about the, about the film as a whole, but that's a different podcast that we've already done. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have Talking any other about, outlier? I mean, there any other things in common between any of us? We had Winston Duke, Scott and I both had mm, Winston right. Duke in nine yeah. days. Um, who's maybe the best thing about the movie for me. Uh, I mean, there's obviously a lot I like about the movie, but um, yeah, like kind of like we talked about with, with Zazie Beats, the contrast that he plays to her as like um, this, you know, soft spoken uh, guy who had, you know, takes his role very seriously, especially after what happens at the beginning of the movie and like his determination to not make the same mistake again, to not feel anything really, to like try to just be very objective about what he is doing um, and not let his feelings come into play. Um, you know, I think he, he matches the tone matches like the tone and atmosphere of the movie perfectly um because it, it's it i don't know it has this really sort of calming atmosphere about it in a way the the movie and the world that Edsonota creates and i think there's something so inviting about is his performance even though he's not really opening up until the very end until he explodes there at the end 
Yeah, I, I, I love the performance throughout. Um, there's, you know, several really almost, I mean, not kind of weirdly because I never really thought about it like this, but comparing it to like Benedict Cumberbatch, right? There's there's this like really gruff exterior, right? Like not hyper masculine, it's not doing the same thing there, but like there's this exterior he's trying to put up, put forth, you know, to, um, you know, to the candidates, to even to Benedict Wong's character um, about like how, this is the way I'm going to be. Right. But then you see this like just real genuine tenderness come through in the moments specifically around when he's recreating these memories. Um, but ultimately like what I love most about this performance, it comes down to a scene, right? Like it comes down to that final, the final five minutes, which is just like, I mean, that is just some of the most breathtaking, you know, moments of acting that I, that I saw last year. It's just so overwhelming. Like I, you know, I, I got, I got, I was fortunate enough to watch the film in a theater and I was just like flattened buy it in the in the theater um when it happened and then it just sort of now this doesn't have to do with the acting but like the movie knows it should end right there like it knows it should end and it does um it just sort of just you you're left with that like that's the that's the lasting image you're left with of the film um and it's amazing yeah well, I, I did want to talk about oscar isaac because i think that he brings such a like a, a ferocity to this character in the card counter and um, is such a good match for the Paul Schrader material, like this sort of man in a room thing where um, he has this past and he has really like a difficult time reckoning with what it means for him. And he's like not willing to process it for himself. And so he tries to do that via proxy, via other people. And um, he sort of takes on Ty Sheridan as sort of like an admission of his own guilt. And he feels responsible for things that he didn't speak out on or that he participated in. And there's specific, there's a specific scene. If you've seen the movie where they're, they're talking with him in Ty Sheridan in a diner that are really like, is the, is that character distilled into one moment? And it just, he has such command of every frame of the movie and he's just so in control until he's not. And um, when he sort of does lose it at moments, it's like really scary and like, it really puts you in a place of like uncomfortability, which is like what Schrader is really good at getting to. I think the uh, the two outliers I had real quick um, are kind of opposites again. So we have another performance that I think surprisingly fits the internal theme that we're talking about, and that is Matt Damon in Stillwater. This it's not the performance; I mean, it's not the movie you expect it to be. It's not the performance you expect it to be. He is not like the cartoonish Trump supporter. He is like a you know. He's a broken man. The whole movie is kind of about these two people and their brokenness, him and him and his daughter. Um, and watching him open up when he meets, when he when he finds himself in this environment that is unfamiliar to him, I think I think he does all that stuff really well. Like the kind of being gruffly frustrated with like uh, you know being the the American abroad, but then finding like the the peace and the you know, comfort in some place so unfamiliar to him, some place so distant from what kind of brought him all this pain in France when he meets Camille Cotton's character. And, um, but also that part that is still, you know, that part of him, that broken part that is still lurking inside of him, kind of just waiting to emerge, um, which is what we get in that third act of the movie. So I thought he was great. And then 
Opposite of that, I think Joaquin Phoenix is one of the more expressive performances that we've talked about. And just like the warmth that he exudes as well. I, I think this is like Joaquin Phoenix's best mode, like, you know, similar to like what he did in her. Um, he's just, you know, he can be so inviting when he wants to be. Um, and I think he's a great he he's a very believable, uh, you know, fun uncle. Um, I guess, which is, you know, ultimately what, if you distill his character down to its bones, that is what he is. Uh, so I loved, um, the expressiveness of him and like that one, one moment is that I really love is when he's talking to the one kid whose dad was in prison or whatever. And the kid just comes out with some like great astute observation and the camera just pans over to Phoenix and he just has like this perfectly like. I can't believe I just like captured this moment of gold um, look on his face. And he just says, you're a good man. Like that's all he can say uh, because kind of like we like kind of like us watching a lot of the movie, watching a lot of come on, come on. We're just kind of like so struck by the um, wisdom of these young people that he's speaking to. So he's wonderful. Yeah, I guess we can get to our winners now. Um, my winner is Hidetoshi Nishijima um, for pretty much all the reasons that we sort of outlined. He brings that pain to a point that you both understand, but you also want there to be more and you keep searching for it and you know that there's depth there. And it's like, it's that slight inability to access it that like really makes the performance like like impossible to turn away from and, and really captivating from them. Scott, who was your winner? Yeah, my winner was Winston Duke. I don't really have too much more to to say about it since we've already talked about it. But yeah, just really tour de force in the last in the last few minutes that really slammed it home for me. And mine was Simon Rex. Um, so we covered all of our bases there, I think. Yeah, well, uh, you know, real quick shout out Stephen Graham. Boiling Point. It's like this one take movie about a you know a, a chef who's in this really stressful situation um, in this kitchen in, in England and. Um, it's all these mitigating factors in his life that all come to a head in this one specific night and his struggle to try and keep his hand on the steering wheel and his difficulty to, to try and do so. Um, and Nick Cage, I mean, again, it's been talked about a lot, but I think his, I love him as an actor, but I, like him in this mode is really like refreshing to see um, bringing that sort of soulful register, but also like he is good at expressing like an anger about someone else's inability to like connect with themselves in a way that I think is really, really great. Uh, Mahershala Ali, the one person I hadn't talked about for my nominee list, um, just really fantastic swan song. I, I remember, I don't remember if we talked about this on the podcast or not, but like that, that and, and seeing that like shortly like come out basically at the same time duel did at Sundance was like just a really Weird. surreal <laughs> moment. Yeah. Um, I kind of thought swan song was going to be better. You Paul, I think you thought duel was going to be better. And I think swan song came out, um, on top for me and part of that I mean honestly the, the biggest part of that is just what Mahershala Ali is able to do um, in the film versus what you know everyone else everyone's able to do you know the limited cast that was in Duel was able to do with that and um, the I mean kind of like Olivia Coleman, I feel like this guy can like just do anything you put in front of him he can he's not a chameleon he's very recognizable but he's able to completely submerge himself into his characters and give you something that feels um, you know, really special almost every time he, he decides to step in front of the camera. He's got such a disarming face too. Like when he cracks a smile or when he sort of, you can tell yeah. he gets visibly sad, like connects emotionally in a special way that's hard, I think, to pinpoint, but he's really good at. Yeah. A couple just 
for me to say a couple other names. Um, Andrew Garfield and Tick, Tick, Boom. I thought it was great. Um, Cooper Hoffman and Licorice Pizza. And, yes, I have to say it. I it, With complete sincerity, I did have this on my list. Tom Hardy in Venom, Let There Be Carnage was on my list uh, because he's amazing in that role. Um, all right. Uh, last two categories. Best Director. Scott, your nominees. Best Director. All right. Denny Villeneuve for Dune. Jane Campion for The Power of the Dog. Maggie Gyllenhaal for The Lost Daughter. Ryusuke Hamaguchi for Drive My Car. And Pedro Almodovar for Parallel Mothers. Uh, I had Denny Villeneuve for Dune. I had Jane Campion for The Power of the Dog. I had Ryusuke Hamaguchi for two movies. Uh, I had Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza. And I had Sean Baker for Red Rocket. Wait, so you nominated him two times or just, sorry, it was confusing. I think he just like, is saying that he's, I think the nomination is like for Drive My Car. For Drive My Car, okay. Got it. Uh, <laughs> you can use the other one if you want to, I was just trying to clarify. Yeah. yeah. For my best director, I have Reese Gamaguchi, Drive My Car, Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza, uh, Joaquin Trier for The Worst Person in the World, Joanna Hogg for The Souvenir Part 2, and David Lowry for The Green Knight. That was my first one out, David Lowry. Me and Scott Shelton almost had no crossover. That was wild. Looky wild. That was like freaking out for a second there. Got um, a long list for this one too. Uh, because even some movies which weren't like my favorite movies, like Spencer, for example, like was the four only four stars for me, but like I thought it was very well directed. Um, so that was that was one that, for example, that stood out to me. Um, I almost put James Wan in here just for the lols, but uh, yeah, you know, would have been fun. That's a, that's a uh, screen, more of a screenplay movie. It's the fine tunings of the. It, oh, yeah, of course. You know? No, it's more of a stunts movie, is what it is, legitimately. But um, yeah, so we all had Ryusuke Hamaguchi. Was that the only one that we all had? I think so, yeah. Yeah, because you didn't no have way. Bill Noob, did you, Paul? Nope. I did not. The man with the Dune screen name here on StreamYard did not have Villeneuve. Um, but oh, at least he got nominated at the... Oh, wait. No, he didn't. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I loved Dune. It didn't. It doesn't like come up for me in a lot of these other categories because, you know, the performances, again, weren't necessarily the showpiece for me. Um, but, like, for me as a, as a, you know, Dune, you know, virgin, not knowing anything about it going in... Um, you know, all I knew was that this was supposed to be so dense, like unadaptable, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he pulled it off. He nailed it. Like we've we've talked about, like I was able to follow what was going on. I was enthralled by what was going on. I was like ready to see part two as soon as this movie ended. Um, you know, it, it clearly he it was a labor of love and he put in, you know, what he needed to put in to actually adapt to the unadaptable. And I think what he got out of it was even tenfold to what he, what he put in. So um, just, you know, very, very impressed by how he was able to make this movie, you know, this close to being a top 10 movie for somebody like me. Yeah. I could talk about him for hours on this. I was, I like was so happy that I got to see this thing at, at the New York film festival with like, and in person, I, I thought at first that I wasn't going to get a ticket. I ended up getting a ticket like in the back row, uh, but was so fortunate to be there. And I mean, it was the one I was most excited for this past year, especially after reading the novel. Um, and the fact that he was probably he's probably my second favorite, you know, currently working director and getting to 
be there on like the U.S. opening night and getting to hear him talk about it afterwards and it, living up, right? Like to exactly what Scott said, like adapting the unadaptable. I mean, he he was sort of the maestro pulling all the strings. He had a lot of help, obviously, in every department, especially the craft departments. Um, the obviously, like he's not writing the score. He's not behind the camera. Um, other people are doing those functions, but he had the vision to translate all of those parts into something that, you know, I already talked about it when we were talking about the screenplay, but it was extremely watchable. Um, like Scott, I sort of like walked out of my first viewing and true of my second and third. And I don't even know how many times I watched that movie last year. It was a bunch of uh, viewings. And I was like, I could have, I could have kept going for another two and a half hours. Like I could have easily just kept going. Um, and that's saying something like even, you know, it, it's rare as much as I don't have too much of a problem with long movies, like it's rare for me to walk out of a two and a half hour plus movie and be like two and a half more, please right now. Um, and I totally would have been happy, happy with that. If the film had just been, you know, one five hour film wouldn't have bothered me. Um, and if, that just that's I think that you, speaks to coalescing all those parts. Yeah. If that's how you feel, you should watch Ryusuke Hamaguchi's happy hour. Then I, yeah. I plan on it. Don't <laughs> worry. Tuck in for five hours. Uh, yeah. Uh, Villeneuve is one of those things where like, even now I'm like, oh, it's probably pretty dumb that I don't have him on my list, but I think, yeah, it, it is to be clear. Oh, ultimately <laughs> what it came down to, I think is just, I think when it's really close and I think it's all these directing achievements are, are really towering. I think I just liked the other, the movies that I nominated the That's directors fair. for like slightly more, which I think I just couch out to in general, but it right. is an amazing piece of direction. And um, he captures scale in a way that like, has not really been done often. Like, you know, it feels like the kind of shit David Lean was doing. And like, I don't use that comparison lightly at all, but the grandeur sure. is like such an accomplishment. And I, I did, I, I think I liked doing a lot more than even Scott Harvey did. I was sort of fall in the middle of you two, I think, but um, yeah, it's such a difficult thing to realize visually too. some of the, like the way so, that the so much of it has to be in your head, right? And, like, yeah, and, that, and that's the, I mean, that's the part that feels so not, not that other people the, aren't doing directors are doing the same thing, but like yeah. the, what he's doing is so different than what any other director is doing in most of their movies, not even a knock and, on other directors, but like he's just doing something different. And what this movie does that's really special is it makes ancient history feel old. Like it's so far in the future that like shit that's way in the past, like that's like the future for us feels like it's like a distant memory for them. And it's like a whole different civilization. Um, but yeah, I mean, what an achievement. I think someone else that I want to say that I think we both had Paul Thomas Anderson, me and Scott Harvey did. Yeah, we did. Um, yeah, yeah I, I didn't nominate the screenplay because I just think it's much more of a, a direction kind of movie. And I think that as, as far as capturing this time and place and visually too, the way that it's constructed and the aesthetic of the movie, I think like all those choices and all the little performances, like every actor, like every bit actor giving these amazing performances is also, I think, an accomplishment of a director at the same time. And um, absolutely, it is this fully realized vision of a, of a world, you know, that's feel again, it feels like a sense memory of a time and place. And it translates all of that stuff like so beautifully and, and really makes you want to live in inside of the movie almost. And um, it's a much different mode for him too. I think it's much gentler. It's a little softer. It's a little more sort of melancholic. Um, in like a different way than I think his other movies have been. And um, yeah, what a piece of direction that is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
I think I think it's sneakily such a great looking movie too. I mean, all of his movies are, but like, um, I think just some of the shot, you know, the, some of the shots that he frames here are perfect. I'm not going to talk about the freaking poster scene again because, good lord. Um, but <laughs> I mean, Scott, know, if you like, think it's framed well, please talk about it. It's okay. For example, I do. But for example, Tom Waits's, uh, you know, appearance into the movie, like that shot of him in like the silhouette behind the, um, you know, cigarette smoke is so great and. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of some other examples that I love, but you know, it's just somebody tweeted that video out recently of like the scene where they're running through after all the cars have, uh, you know, run out of gas where uh, Cooper Hoffman and his mm -hmm. brother are, are, you know, just running around and life on Mars is playing. And somebody tweeted it out. and was like, why is this so good? Uh, and that's just what you feel about like a lot of the movie, because yeah, it's, it's shaggy. It's episodic. It, um, you know, just kind of ambles along um, into these different, you know, sub subplots, these different colorful characters, you know, popping up along the way. And yet it's just so, you know, fun and engaging to watch and still is telling a cohesive story, at, you know, thematically and narratively. Um, so I think that's just, you know, he, he has a lot, he doesn't need to prove himself. Paul Thomas Anderson has long past needed to needing to prove himself uh, as a director. But I think Paul's right that it is still so cool to see him do something that he really hasn't done vibes wise since like punch drunk. Okay. Do we want to do winners? Uh, and then no, I, I do want to, I do want to talk about one of my, I mean, I guess most of mine, well, I guess not most of mine were stand or like standalones, but I think Pedro not really because I had campion also. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to, well, I was going to talk about all motivar, which I think I was the only one. Yeah. Had. Um, yeah. I, Kind of on the same note, uh, earlier I was talking about like screenplays that grab my attention when you're molding multiple like stories or narratives together and and adding your own spice. Like I feel like Almodovar is kind of doing that um, at like a just like at a at a at a meta film level, well, not even meta, just like at a film level, right? Like he's not. It is part of the screenplay, of course. Like it has to come from the screenplay in some sense. But like the idea that he's molding these two narratives, and I was talking about this with Penelope Cruz earlier, but this like really you know, macro level commentary on, you know, current culture in Spain and the sort of the way the country remembers or lack or doesn't remember the Spanish Civil War uh, and sort of putting that as like, you know, there, there are, like I said, I think that there are actually a lot of consistent uh, th through line threads to, to keep that relevant throughout the whole film, but really putting that as like the bun and then like the meat of the movie is this sort of like more, you know, personal family drama, the micro level drama. I think he's just able to sort of narrate that essentially um, thread that all together extremely well. And, you know, someone who, you know, I'd heard a lot about him, but the first movie that I saw of his was pain and glory. And like, it was good, but I wasn't as impressed as I had expected to be by it. And then sort of went into this, not on a whim, but sort of bought a ticket to this at the last minute for the New York film festival. And it was kind of, it was kind of my surprise of the festival. Um, just was really blown away by it and thought that what he had to say about um, sort of this the, at, at the macro level about about culture in Spain was really powerful. And, you know, the way that he's able to wrap the movie up at the end when you kind of feel like the movie's ended. But then he has this sort of epilogue that ties everything like very, very saliently back together. Um, I just found extremely powerful. One of the most powerful scenes uh, of the year. For me uh, at the end of this film um really really great stuff and i need to check out you know more of his 
back catalog to see um, if I'm resonating on a level more like this with his other movies or, or more like Pain and Glory. But I, I felt like he had a lot on his mind and he was able to, to sort of get that out uh, on the screen effectively. Yeah, I really think that between Parallel Mothers and also a hero, I think like your relationship to their previous work really affects like whether it's like this is them doing their thing. Cause I feel like that's what I've seen a lot from people who like are really well versed in Farhadi and, and Almodovar is it sort of it's them in a familiar mode and not saying that like the movies are not doing specific things different and maybe they are special in, in certain ways. But I wonder like, yeah, if like this being one of your first ones affects like how much you sort of get into it because like they have such a distinct approach and everything. Um, well, yeah, this this was my first Almodovar movie. And like, I, th I mean, I really liked it. I thought it, I mean, it's very well made, but I feel like I'm always going to be held back from his movies just again, because of the melodramatic nature of them is just not what I go for. And I take that to be a pretty essential quality from of his style, from what I understand. And is definitely present in Parallel Mothers. I just thought it was really that, that melodrama that you're talking about here. I honestly, I barely remember Pain and Glory, but like I just found it very entertaining and it really moved in this one in a way that it just didn't for me for Pain and Glory. All right, do yeah. I get to winners? I mean, winners, I yeah, guess. I mean, let's do it. Um, yeah, for me, it's it's Joanna Hogg. Um, I didn't talk about this one as much. I'll get into it a little after you guys say your winners, but that is like a really special moment, I think, for a filmmaker. Scott? Uh, sort of on the other side of a part one, part two coin, I am taking Denny Villeneuve. Sort of on another side of a part one, part two, because he made two movies. Uh, I'm picking Ryusuke Yamaguchi. <laughs> Wow, that was certainly certainly another side of that <laughs> three-sided coin. I well, mean, we, we try, we try. Listeners will will not forget that, that he did two movies this year. Um, Scott trying to shoehorn in the double nomination. Uh, he did three, yeah, technically again, if you count Wife of a Spy, but yeah. Well, he well, wrote he just wrote that. Yeah, um, I know he didn't direct it. Okay, I, I I think as far as Joanna Hogg though, I think it's so rare and special when there is this moment of self actualization within someone's own cinematic art form, and um, I think especially like. It really helps, I think, that I, I re-watched the first Souvenir like two days before I went and saw part two because the journey that Julie's character goes on and where she starts and where she ends up and the things along the way that affect her and, God, the, it's hard because it's such a, a specific moment, but there's one moment in the Souvenir part two that I, I really don't want to spoil um, that's sort of near the end that is just like, she she fucking did it like she took this entire journey of a character that it obviously is like very much based on joanna hogg's real life and she brought it to a point where i really think she found out a lot about herself as a person and like was able to translate that so beautifully on screen and the way aesthetically even it's like a really soft and delicate aesthetic compared to sort of the dark blues and the harsh yellows of the first movie there's a lot of soft pinks and beiges i think in part two and I think the emotional tenor of the movie is really in concert with that. And um, to do what she did from taking something that I can't believe got a sequel, like the souvenir, I could not believe it when there was like, Oh, there's going to be a part two. And I was like, what are you talking about? Um, but to see where it ended up, it's like, wow, like what, what a job by her. I mean, it's just ridiculous that honor Swinton Byrne doesn't have a script for these movies. I mean, it's just, it's just silly, right? Like that's just crazy. Yeah. Everyone else uh, has Scott. a script, but, but she doesn't. <laughs> yeah, you went with Villeneuve, right, Scott? I did go Villeneuve. I don't really have much more to say. Guy's amazing. Incredible. 
keep doing it. And he's going to keep doing it. I think they're filming later this year for part two. So I don't know. I, yeah. I and I mean, Hamaguchi anymore. Yeah. Hamaguchi. I feel like we've said the Hamaguchi points, but just, you know, that he, he makes something, you know, with so many disparate influence. I mean, so many disparate sources, this and uh, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, like that he is stringing together three different stories too. Um, but he makes it his own. Like, you know, you're watching a Hamaguchi movie. Um, and, you know, again, and Drive My Car even goes so far as to look into and interrogate what makes a Hamaguchi movie a Hamaguchi movie, um, which it's impressive for a director to pull off that sort of meta textual thing without it seeming like overly winky or like you know or self-aggrandizing sanctimonious i guess um so it was it was you know it it was drive my car wheel of fortune fantasy were top 20 movies for me i I guess drive my car did crack the top 10 but like i was thinking about them in tandem i can't lie if you say i'm breaking the rules fine whatever but um coming out with that as a one-two punch in a year um it hasn't been equaled since tom mccarthy gave us the cobbler in spotlight in the same year. <laughs> I, yeah i had to go there but um no we he, we he, haven't he, spoken he, about jane campion who's probably going to win the oscar right genius, like yeah. she's a good director i think i think that's fair to say yeah good as some what, yeah what, paul what i mean you're, you're someone who just watched all of her movies so yeah and it's she, like she's on like my three favorite movies from her i think are like the last three she made so like she's on a hot streak i guess <laughs> she's on a hot streak from a decade ago <laughs> 20 years literally 20 years ago yeah, yeah. Um, and then yeah just um, i mean sh- shout out real quick joaquin sure i mean worst person in the world yeah. is my favorite movie of 2021 um i think it's tough because souvenir parts is so personal so i think like the directing of it just feels like much more of a joanna hogg thing and i think i you know part of it too as i awarded other things from worst person in the world but um visually some of the stuff that walking tour does and the way that he realizes some of those moments is is pretty incredible and david lowry we've sort of mentioned it too but the look and just the atmosphere of that kind of movie it's like man i just love when movies are like they're fun and cool and like weird in ways that i think are like very artfully done i can't believe none of us had spielberg by the way like i love all the, the people i nominated but spielberg like you know, he, as people said, he freaked it, you know, on, on West Side Story. And it's an incredible achievement. Yeah. The thing, I really, if if he had, ca- I think casting affects it a little bit because he cast who he cast as Tony. And so it's like, well, that's, that takes the movie down a little bit as a whole. And also his, his directing job for me. Yeah. To me, it was like, it was, it was that or Maggie Gyllenhaal. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, The Lost Daughter didn't have Ansel Elgort. So I'm happy to put that in here. No, I'm kidding. I didn't. I did. That's not how I thought about it. But um, no, it. Yeah, I kind of feel stupid not putting him in, and like because I talked about the Lost Otter so much already. Um, but yeah, look, he he went for it. <laughs> um, all right, guys, it's the it. Big finish. This is it. Uh, favorite scenes of the year, and I do have these from ten to one. Um, and I, I was saying this off air, but um, you know. You can you're, y'all are probably going to say some scenes and I'm going to be like, yep, should have been in my top 10, should have been my top 10. I just kind of put down the first 10 things that came to mind. So um, number 10, I have America from West Side Story. We were just talking about it. So nice transition there. Uh, number nine, I have the parking lot fight scene from Red Rocket, which we briefly brought up earlier. Funniest scene in the movie, probably. Uh, at number eight, I have the final scene of Nine Days, which we've mentioned. 
Um, at number seven, I have the Christmas morning scene from Spencer, um, again, where she wakes up William and Harry in the middle of the night and they have this fun moment, like sort of play acting together. Um, such a warm moment in a movie that is often cold. Um, the ending of the green night is my number six. Uh, you know, just even just that final moment of, you know, off with, off with his head, um, maybe probably the best ending of the year for me. Uh, number five, I have the worst person in the world, the time free sequence, um, for obvious reasons. Number four, I have what I call the backseat confession from drive my car, which is when we get, um, Tchaikovsky telling the second part of the story, basically, um, from, uh, his wife. Uh, and at number three, I have the mur the mural reveal scene from, uh, the French dispatch that I already mentioned, um, Adrian Brody doing great stuff. And then I also love the shot of Leah Seydoux, Leia Seydoux, like walking by in slow motion past the portrait that she inspired. That's a great shot. Male in his twenties um, loves Leah Seydoux naked. Hot take here. More. No, 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 not, this is not what she's naked. I'm not talking about that. Um, number two, Gabriel revealed from Malignant. Uh, just the oh, most wow. fun, like, you know, jaw on the floor, like cheering movie, mo like movie moment. We're back at the movies moment. Um, and number one, John Peters and the truck sequence from Licorice Pizza. Um, hard to deny for me that um, just alternately hilarious and thrilling. I've mentioned like my maybe one of my favorite shots in the whole movie is just when they are driving away from the house and they think they've made it away clear. And just the shot of him inexplicably walking up over the hill, like in a huff and there, and just then just their faces being like, Oh my gosh, what's about to happen right now was amazing. And, but then the way that it goes into like something incredibly suspenseful and PTA uses like silence really well as she's just backing down the, the mountain and everything. It was just, you know, the most edge of my seat scene of the year. Like that reminds me why I love movies. So. There you go. Those are my 10 scenes. Um, but there are so many more I could have picked. Paul. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, spoiler alert for some of these, I suppose. Um, this one even shocked me. My number 10 is Andrew Garfield saving uh, MJ in Spider-Man Far From Home. <laughs> oh, gen nice. That genuinely, like, made me tear up. And, like, it's like this meta moment of, like, again, it's like he was reckoning with his real relationship in a movie. I think that's, like, kind of crazy. Um, my number nine is also I have the final meeting with the green knight in the green knight um, my number eight is also america from west side story um again like such an interesting reimagining of what's already an iconic scene and song and to make it that expansive is like really wild my number seven is the prison conversation from the end of annette um which i just think like is this is the emotional crux of the movie in so many ways and like it it's a movie that I wasn't totally on the wavelength of until that moment, I think, and that sort of really brought it home for me. Um, my number six is the restaurant scene from Pig, um, where Nicolas Cage talks to the chef that used to work for him, and they have the whole conversation there. My number five is the talent agent scene from Licorice Pizza with Harriet Sansom Harris. Yes. Uh, Fantastico and all just all the, the interplay between all those characters in that moment. Weirdly enough, my number four is the exact same as Scott Harvey's as the car backseat car confrontation from Drive My Car. Um, my number three is, uh, the one last kiss sort of montage ending of Evangelion Thrice Upon a Time, sort of like the culmination of this entire series in like a couple of like specific moments where 
Shinji sort of like comes to grips with who he is and who he can be and who he wants to be. Um, my number two is now reading from the novel in Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which I sort of mentioned in our Best Supporting Actress conversation. Mm-hmm. And my number one is the Frozen in Time sequence and the worst person in the world. Scott? Uh, similar to Paul, though, I guess not exactly the same. My number 10 is from Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, it's just like the super fan serviciness of, I mean, it's that, it's like the whole end, right? Where they're going on these, like, there's a meta part of every single one of the performances that's taking place. But then like, I guess if you have to pick a specific moment, it's like, it's like really cool to see these three Spider-Men like swinging on, on the screen at the same time. It's like just undeniably cool that that happened. Um, but I think there's like a lot also built into that scene that makes it, you know, resonate even harder. Um, Scott mentioned Ana de Armas earlier uh in the podcast and in no time to die my number nine is her scene and no time to die in the caribbean uh that shootout's pretty cool i really enjoyed that and just kind of, kind of wish she was in more of the movie but i mean obviously if she was in more of the movie then it probably would have ruined the whole thing for me and it would have been bad um uh, but like the amount that you get from that particular i don't know 10 minutes of the movie is just like really disarmingly fun um there's plenty of fun things about about the film but that just sort of like highlights like the fun first act of the movie if you will because it does get more serious um in the latter two-thirds um, and number eight is the opening number that in the heights from in the heights um nice yeah i was kind of surprised that wasn't on anyone else's list to be honest it's just like i picked that, one that, musical like, number and i chose america yeah yeah i mean you can pick more than one musical number but uh, oh the opening <laughs> i know i'm just saying i know <laughs> <laughs> Scott's losing it. It's like, it's like um, more tension than drive my car. Jesus. Yeah, goodness. Yeah, the audience is is hanging on every word right now. Um, yeah, no that 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 opening sequence just rips. I think that everything about it is just really cool, really awesome. Um, it, not a statement of quality in the film, but like it doesn't get better than that in the movie for me. Uh, it's just a real highlight to open up with. Speaking of musicals, my number seven is West Side Story. Uh, I'm going not with America, but with the high school dance. Um, the, I don't know what the scene is actually called or what the what the number is, um, but it's that scene. Really enjoyed that. Talking about Spielberg wilding out. He does some wild camera flare tricks. Um, Janusz Kaminski. For sure. Yeah, Janusz Kaminski. Yep, for sure. Number six is similar to Scott's scene from Licorice Pizza, but I'm going with Bradley Cooper's like when you first meet his character, mm-hmm. not as yeah. opposed to going Stry, on hill like Stry sand Stry yeah sand. exactly when he when he takes gary um aside the has the conversation like just so funny that's just such a funny scene i uh, absolutely love that number five this is where it got like really hard for me guys i'm not gonna lie number five is the train robbery from the harder they fall um mm. it really amazing scene sort of a there's there's like a lot of great scenes in that in that film frankly but that's one where you just get lakeith stanfield at his best um just really phenomenal stuff. Uh, my number four. Uh, th- this is just officially the fourth best scene of the year. <laughs> no <laughs> way. That's incredible. Drive my car uh, in the backseat. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> uh, giving the, the third act of the Lamprey story. Um, no, Apex Mountain for backseats. It's either this or backseat freestyle think, from Kendrick Lamar. Okay. And from- <laughs> I think it's also kind of impressive that we all agreed on the best scene of Drive My Car. Because, I mean, that's a three-hour movie with a lot of great scenes in it. But like, I, I also mean, do I think, think it's think like it's- clearly the emotional crescendo of the movie for me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. For me, um, yeah. I, I wouldn't have been surprised if someone had picked the Uncle Vanya 
scene at the end because I, I do think that's doing a lot of work. When they go to see her hometown, I think is pretty up there. For see, me. that was the one that didn't work for me. But that's yeah. the, I know that I knew that Scott wasn't going to pick that one, so I wasn't surprised <laughs> that Scott didn't pick that one. Uh, disagree, like Paul over here, but um, yeah, wow. I knew that he wasn't going to be picking that one. But I was, I was, I'm not surprised. I do think it is the best scene. Um, and, and when I when I think about drive my car, I think about that. Like honestly, I think about that scene. Like I think about like the breathlessness of like. I, yeah, I'm too. just finding myself holding my breath when the, and the camera following through the car yeah. and then like the yeah. rain just, yeah, it's so good. Oh, yeah. It's so, so good. Um, number three for me was the spice harvester scene from Dune. Uh, I just remember like, so like just so clearly having a mental uh, image in my mind when I was reading the book about what that scene would look like. And yeah. I guess maybe for like the first and only time in my life, uh, Denny and I were like on the same wavelength. Cause I feel like, what I was what I was thinking was like exactly what ended up on the screen. Um, and I just think there's so many elements of that scene. That's amazing. Um, obviously, it's the first time you see the sandworm um, and the fact that the, 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 you talk about the scale of the movie earlier, like there's plenty of huge things earlier on in the film than this, like the Stellan huge spaceships. Um, <laughs> Stellan Skarsgård, absolutely. He was a very big man um, in this movie. If, if he is a man, I guess that's not confirmed. Um, but overall, just like, I think you, the immensity of what the desert represents, um, is really captured in this moment. It's so critical for the film that you understand that. So yeah, just really amazing scene. Um, two and one, I, I go back and forth about, like, I kind of wanted to put what my number two is as number one, just cause I've already talked about my number one, um, in more detail, but my number two is parallel mothers and that's the math it's the ending scene from parallel mothers at the mass grave dig location um it, it's like it's not I, I i have to like preface this every single time i i talk about this like it's not schindler's list but it like sort of has its schindler's list moment um at the end it's of the film of it, yeah yeah it, it certainly it certainly harkens back to the to the final moments of schindler's list um not the same emotional weight as that but still a really powerful moment for me in the film and even to the point where you know it starts out as this image of like you see all the bones um at the dig site where you know this you know these people's family members their fathers their grandfathers um great-grandfathers were executed and just sort of mass buried there um during the spanish civil war and then it, it takes this like sort of really unexpected turn for me where the camera pans back around and it's the it's the archaeologists and dig workers um, laying in the place of the skeletons and sort of like, there's just something about that that just like really penetrated my soul. I feel like when I watched the movie um, to see it's, it's like one thing to look at bones and, and you can feel removed from that, right? Like these aren't, it's not a real person. You're like, yes, there's a connection to a real person, but it's not a real person. And then when you see like what those bodies would have looked like when they were, you know, executed and dumped there, it's just like, I just found that so, so overwhelming in the moment. And then my number one scene is from Nine Days. I think the departure scene, the very end of the movie. Um, I've already talked about it at great length, but what Winston Duke is able to do there. Again, I talked about sort of like taking your breath away and, and feeling like you're holding your breath um, and drive my car when that story's being told. Like I'm holding my breath for like as long as I can when he's just belting out um, his monologue at the end of that. It's just like sensational, sensational acting. That's me. Yeah, I guess I didn't, <laughs> I sort of like was a little short with some of mine. So just to sort of elaborate, I guess, a little bit on why some of them are so moving. I think in 
the one in pig, the restaurant conversation. Um, I mean, I find the idea so powerful, right? This idea of like, do you get a few things to care about in life and like the way that he seizes on that. And <laughs> I mean, even the reveal of like the fact that he, like he remembers him because he's like the guy who used to overcook the pasta and, um, but it's like Cage's intensity that's sort of matched at the same time with like his sadness about um, other people failing to realize like what these precious things in life can can mean to you in these specific moments. I think that stuff is just like really incredible. And a lot of these other moments are really capturing a, some sort of weird emotional specificity, whether it's the novel scene from Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which is like the push and pull. And you can't you can't really tell what the teacher is feeling about what is happening and sort of until you get to the end of it, right? You sort of think it's might be going one way and might be going the other way. Um, that is just so captivating. And I just couldn't look away from that scene. Um, and I've tried to cover, you know, a range of different emotional experiences on mine. But for me, my, my number one, the frozen in time scene from worst person in the world, it's just like the feeling of euphoric joy that I sort of chase when I go to the movies. And like, it reminds me a lot of the scene in Portrait of Lady on Fire where there's the singing at the campfire, which is like one of my favorite movie scenes probably of all time. It's like this idea that in this specific moment, like something so ineffable and special happens and I start to get chills whenever those moments happen. And I just get so excited because I just feel transported to another place. Um, and it's like, you know, it's this, it's, it's like this, it's her sort of, her love and her, her possibilities sort of trapped in amber. And it's this specific moment that's like, probably going to slip away but for that moment for that brief moment it's just her and the rest of the world sort of doesn't matter yeah i think that's uh, a perfect summation of it there we go we did it 2021 in movies guys any final thoughts uh i mean i just a good year. A really great year yeah and with so yeah, many yeah. different types of movies that i think were were great for different reasons i think and and appeal to different people in different ways and um you know and on yeah. the blockbuster front i it wasn't i don't think an overly amazing year but still when you get something like dune in a commercial in a commercially viable sense like it's kind of amazing so anyway guys i'm proud of us we came in underneath the length of drive my car so i feel like we did a successful podcast um here but thank you to paul for joining us uh thank you to scott as always uh anyone want to Paul, we'll go to you first. Social media, where can people find you? I mean, if you're listening to this, you probably followed me on Letterboxd or are aware of my presence on Letterboxd. So just search my name on Letterboxd and Twitter and see what I'm watching, what I think of it, and what have you. Um, it's, yeah, it's a great year. And so many of these performances, it's fun to celebrate because, you know, there are a lot of places that they won't be celebrated, but, you know, we can have our little... Namely Paul has such a narrow but also accurate view of our audience uh, base. So thank you for that. Uh, Scott, you're, where are you on social media? At Shelton 2013 on everywhere that matters. Letterbox, serialized. Serialized plug, yeah. <laughs> serialized. Music Let's board. Go. <laughs> um, yeah. Goodreads as well. You can find me yeah. there. Okay. Yeah, I'm at Scarby Dent <laughs> on all the platforms, not Goodreads, um, but everywhere else, I'm at Scarby Dent. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Some Like It. Scott, if you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Even if you can't support us over there, don't forget to like, rate, review, subscribe, and do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you will be back for our next episode of the podcast. We've done our own personal Oscars today. Next time, we will be talking about 
the actual Oscars, the show that was. Uh, so join us for that. But until then, for Paul Oyama and Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road. We'll be right back.